Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 51! No feasting, no dancing. I'm Scatty, and with me as always is my partner in crime, Matt. The yin to my yang, I'm the wang to his wing. Matt is here with me. Say hello, Matt. Mm, wang. Yellow. <laughs> wang. Alright, uh, those of you that haven't heard uh, the news, you've noticed a, a, a difference to the opening already. Uh, you probably have been following along on Twitter or Facebook or somewhere we posted the, or, or, or on the Tumblr, somewhere we posted, but Brooke has, has left the cast. Um, just a few little quick notes, entirely her choice. The three of us are still friends. There are no hard feelings. Uh, it was amicable. Very amicable. Yeah. We love her. We understand her reasons. Um, you know, some people have, you know, questioned, you know, trying to get more detail about those reasons. They're, they're her reasons. We're asking to please respect her privacy. Um, if you haven't yet read her fellow and you want to, you can. You can find it on DavosFingers.com. It's it's still up. Um, so please just respect her privacy. We love and and respect Brooke and will ferociously defend her uh, against anyone that, that, that comes to <laughs> give any snark. Honestly, we are pretty chill, and and thankfully no one's given any snark yet. Yeah. but uh, yeah, come at Brooke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but we definitely have been. Oh, man, it's been like super heartwarming to see the outpouring of support and stuff for both her and yeah. and and you know the two of us. It's it's been really encouraging to see that. So thanks yeah. everybody for understanding and being yep. respectful and you know just true friends is really what it comes down to. Right. Yeah, it was not an easy decision for her. It's it's you know it hasn't oh, obviously been easy for us either, but um, mm. you know it's it's going to be the best for her, and that's that's what's important. So, um, you know, th- this show uh, will not be the same. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt, and I love each other. Brooke brought so much to this cast; it's, <clears throat> you can't even uh, you can't even describe it. Um, but the, you know, not the least of which was her friendship. Um, you know, this cast, a lot of the feedback we get is about how it, it just sounds like some friends talking, which is what it was, and, and that people felt they were yeah. kind of included into that. And honestly, we love it when we get that kind of feedback. It's it's some of the... the that more... was the whole reason we did this yeah, yeah. in the first place. Was... And, and we love hearing people that feel included in that, right, and, and feel that they belong mm-hmm. to that group of friends. It's it's great to hear that kind of thing. So anyway, we hope we can bring something different that will still be fun. And here we go. Yeah, it might take us a. Hopefully, it doesn't take us like more than too long to figure out our our new normal, as I've been calling it. Yeah, the new normal. But uh, we'll we'll get there, and we'll it'll be fun. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, uh, we just might need someone to rein us in, or we might have to rein ourselves. I know, in. Jesus, we're gonna have to like be our own pacifiers now. Brooke, that was one of the <laughs> things she really did was she like slow us down. Like right now, when we go yeah. off the deep end to talk about something, she'd be like, "All right, bring it back a little bit." Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so. Let's jump back into it. So a brief summary of what we'll be covering this week. Again, something a little bit new. If you haven't heard all the updates, we are covering A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons in tandem, simultaneously, in a special reading order that you can find on our website, uh, davasfingers.com. So long story short, today we will be covering the prologue from A Feast for Crows, the prologue for A Dance with Dragons, John 1 from A Dance with Dragons, The Prophet, which is from A Feast for Crows, and The Captain of the Guards, which is from A Feast for Crows. Now, so if you weren't ready for this, this is all taking you by surprise, pause the episode, man. We'll wait for you. Uh, go read the chapters <laughs> in the order that we're talking about here, and then come back. 
So, and you will have to jump around a little because that John chapter is really like four chapters into A Dance with Dragons, right? Like you skip over some to get to it. Yeah, dude, you fooled but, me. I I didn't look too closely at the reading list, and I just started reading that Tyrion chapter. Uh, I'm like, oh, I, I started reading John the Cersei one. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah. Anyway, I think that means next episode we might have Tyrion. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, guys, guys, our last episode was released in October. It's been a long-ass time. A lot has happened. Uh, we'd be here forever if we tried to talk about everything that oh went gosh. on. Like, so much crap. But um, one thing I know near and dear, especially to Matt's heart, mine as well, but I think Matt's more, the passing of Carrie Fisher, which has been covered in a lot of different places. Oh. But, Matt, I'm sure you have something to, to lay down. Oh, my goodness. Lay down my heart. Uh, been a Star Wars fan. My, for most of my life, and uh, had a c- massive crush on Carrie Fisher for as long as I've liked Star Wars. Um, but what started out as something purely carnal in my little eight-year-old mind. You are disgusting. As, that is gross, isn't it? But as far as the eight-year-old mind could take it, um, it, it turned into this real respect it, both for the character of Princess Leia, which, of course, Carrie Fisher brought to life, but also uh, just Carrie Fisher as a person. She had, you know, she had her demons and things that she dealt with, but, uh, and as Mark, as yeah, right? And as Mark Hamill beautifully penned, uh, did you read his little homage to her I that didn't. he wrote? All I've seen from him is the Joker tweets, which are hilarious. <laughs> right? Trump, the Trump Joker tweets? Yeah. <laughs> go back a little ways i'll see if i can find it and send it to you tomorrow while we're at work i aming inevitably yeah, yeah. uh he he says something along the lines of and I'm, I'm gonna butcher it but just the fact that she would drive him absolutely nuts more often than not but she brought that spice to his life that made his life enjoyable you know um and and that's what she did for a lot of people i think so she'll be yeah. missed she's loved uh, she left behind quite the legacy, and thankfully we, we thankfully we have that. But we'll miss you, Carrie. Eight-year-old Matt will miss you, Indeed. especially. We all will, <laughs> I think. Um, okay, uh, also, the holidays came and went. Uh, yeah. We both uh, texted each other, uh, Matt and I, quickly Christmas morning. Uh, we had both received the illustrated version of Game of Thrones that came out. And we're oh my gosh! Thrilled. I you know when that fir- when that book was announced, I think you and I were both like, "Great, another thing to." I think what yeah. you said was another <laughs> thing to take up Germ's time, take so, him away from wins. I think I told you that in confidence. That makes me sound awful. Okay, I'll I'll edit it out. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I, you know the guy's got to do other stuff, but sometimes yep. I, sometimes I'm like. He, you know, he's publishing the map book, and he's publishing the World of Ice and Fire. He's publishing all this stuff, and you know, he's not doing all the work on all of them for sure. You know, he, no. He and I bet drawings. he did very little work on this one. Yeah, it was yeah. probably like you know, he had to sign off on all the drawings probably and say, "Yep, yep, yep." But mm-hmm. anyway, right? You get pulled but, into uh, meetings. You know how that is. I, I was friggin'. I just sat there Christmas morning after things kind of calmed down and the kids were off playing with their own toys, yeah. and I was just like sitting on the couch just page after page just looking at each illustration yeah and oh my gosh i don't even know if i'll ever even read this version but yeah. it's so cool just as an illustrated edition right yeah. just to 
It is. Look at the and pictures. I'm, I'm doing even, it right now, actually. I'm not even sure I told you, but did I tell you? Mine's actually signed by George. My my sister actually bought it for me. You did like, tell me. Uh, yeah, and so so I'm kind of afraid to even touch it. But yeah, I carefully leaked through the pictures. <laughs> Get those grubby fingers all over George's handiwork. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, uh, anything else? What was your the... What was your What was your favorite Christmas present you got? Was that it? Oh, my favorite Christmas present. Uh, you know what? That probably is it. Yeah. That yeah. Is my favorite Christmas present. Yeah. I, think so. I got the classic uh, Nintendo. Oh. That new one that they just. That's a pleasure. That comes pre like. 45 games or something. Nice. My wife found it. Does she it have Bubble star. Bobble? Bubble Bobble? Does it have what? Bubble Bobble. You don't know Bubble Bobble? It does have Bubble Bobble. Uh, so, should we move on? End, end of announcements? I know you were busy during the break writing music. I wrote music. Didn't finish it, but... We've got a couple uh, got of about tracks tonight it. that I've yep. heard that are awesome. We'll debut a couple of them. Still got a few more to go. I wrote about 20 more pages of my zombie novel, which is about 100 pages less than I wanted to write, but uh, hey, got some done. So it sounds like we all all dramatically underachieved. Okay, moving on. Uh, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment we call Davos After Dark. That means we're, re- we're, we're only going to reveal stuff at the pace we're reading along, so we will not reveal anything beyond that until Davos After Dark. We'll warn you with a special little musical jingle that Matt has concocted uh, at that point. Now, as always, if you want to contact us, suggest topics for future episodes, ask us questions, reach out and provide us some positivity or negativity, whatever, uh, DavosFingers.com, email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find us on the old Facebooks there and reach out to us that that way. So uh, without further ado, I think we're about to begin episode 51. Matt, it's your chapter with a Feast for Crows prologue. Prologue, got me feeling kind of anxious. Prologue, am I gonna make it out of this alive? Prologue, got me feeling kind of anxious. Prologue, am I gonna make it out of this alive? So, Old Town University, home of the Maesters. Okay, so I don't really know what Old Town's mascot is, but nevertheless, we are at Maester Central. The uh, bustling port town of Old Town is home to the Citadel, which is where Maesters train. And here, a group of buddies, all studying to earn their collars at the Citadel, which of course is the ancient place of learning where novices study for a good chunk of their lives to become Westeros Wikipedias, are gathered at the Quill and Tankard, an inn by the Honeywine that hadn't closed in 600 years. They're there to celebrate one of their crew, the comely Alaris the Sphinx, who's earning his copper link. Alaris is also buying drinks and impressing as he shoots the fruit that his friends are throwing out over the water. And he's doing this with his bow and arrow, like Clay Pigeon's Westeros style. But Pate just can't enjoy himself. Now, Pate is a getting older novice who is the apprentice of elderly Archmaester Walgrave, whose mind has gone, but whose frail body remains. And Pate hasn't advanced much at the Citadel at all. Actually, he hasn't done 
anything. He's been there five years and hasn't earned a single chain or link in his chain. Nothing like Alaris, the little prodigy who, after only a year at the Citadel, had already forged three links in his chain. So Pate's dreams of becoming a maester are, are essentially dashed, and Pate can only hope for one thing, leaving the Citadel to become a traveling quasi-maester, or maybe even a barber, <laughs> and to do it with the lovely Rosie, a young serving girl who works at, at the Quill and Tankard, at the end where they are currently. It's like, Wendy Peppercorn, my darling lover girl. I've swum here every summer in my adult life. Every summer, there she is. Roasty. Oily. Oily. And one day, it became too much Smiling. for Michael Squints Polidorus. I can't take this no more! Move! And he did the most desperate thing any of us had ever seen. So Rosie's mom who happens to be a serving wench at the inn, had lovingly decreed that her daughter's maidenhead would cost a golden dragon. Whoever pays the golden dragon gets to take the maidenhead. And Pate was finally prepared to pay the price for the woman he lusted. Like he says, her smile was all he wanted, all he needed. But how had a young novice at the Citadel come across a golden dragon of his own? Turns out that one night, Rosie had introduced him to a stranger at the inn who claimed he was an alchemist that could change iron into gold. By that he meant, you get me a certain key to the Citadel, and I give you a golden dragon. Rosie is yours. But Pate, feeling a dash of loyalty to the place he'd called home for the past five years, had declined the offer initially. The alchemist said he'd come by again in three days to see if he'd change his mind. Those three days had passed, and there sat Pate, back at the Quill and Tankard, anxiously waiting for a sign of the stranger. His compadres have no idea what's going on, why he's there for that reason, and they just sit around trading rumors about dragons and Essos controlled by a mysterious princess. Hmm. And also a glass candle burning at the Citadel, which indicates all sorts of strange portents, as we will probably discuss later. So, with, uh, with dawn fast approaching and no sign of the strange alchemist, Pate begins to walk alone back to the Citadel. And as the sun rises, Pate meets him, the alchemist. Admitting resigned to being a thief, Pate produces the key that the alchemist wanted. Pate had stolen it from Maester Walgrave's chambers. In turn, he inspects the coin that he receives from uh, the alchemist. He even bites down on it to validate its authenticity. He can't believe it. He's actually got the golden dragon. He asks to see the alchemist's face, but is not overly impressed by how ordinary the face seems to be. He's got full cheeks, a shadow of a beard, a scar on his right cheek, a hooked nose, and dense black hair. Meh. When Pate asks who he is, the man replies, a stranger. No one. Truly. 
So concluding their business, Pate departs, but only goes a short distance before he begins to feel dizzy. What's happening? He cries. I I don't understand. And never will, the stranger replies as Pate collapses. His last thought was of Rosie. And that is our prologue. Uh, so another prologue down, another introduction to characters that we haven't seen before. What is up with these prologues, Scatty? Man, I mean, it's like a theme at this point with George. Right? Right? A prologue, (laughs) a new character, somebody you maybe haven't met before in a place you're not familiar with. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like a whole thing. You know, they the prologues, as I thought back on them, they do kind of – they do introduce parts of the story and they get us going. You know, I, I still think back to that very first prologue in A Game of Thrones and how I was hooked line and sinker after that prologue. Yep. Um, but they it, it appears that he also uses these prologues – and this is very odd, I think. I, I don't think I've seen this in other books – to teach us about something, to give us some sort of – of knowledge that we may not need right now, yeah. but the fact that he's talking about it so much here forces us to pay attention because he's not just going to waste it. It's not just like wasted pages. It's We're going to come back to it eventually. And so knowing that, it like forces you to pay closer attention and you end up learning a lot. You know, We're going to learn a lot uh, coming up with the, with the prologue that we're going to talk about next, yeah. um, the advanced prologue. You're, you're, one. you're right. But it's interesting how he teaches us. Yeah, the first one kind of had uh, the whole, I mean, it, you know, it's the, also the first glimpse into the book, so it's a little bit uh, like cheating anything would have been new, right? But, sure. Uh, but you get a major component of the story that he then leaves alone for like two books in the others. Uh, then, you know, with with uh, Clash of Kings, uh, a cock, as we call it, uh, you got mm-hmm. an introduction to... Stannis, who was a major character that had been referenced a lot and a a major arm of this war, but more importantly, you get introduced to this new religion, uh, you know, and this religious component that had been kind of not really revealed much until then. And Mm -hmm. with A Storm of Swords, uh, what, you get... uh, Greater insight into what happened beyond the wall and into the others and kind of how that works. Right. uh, yeah, that one's maybe a little bit of a little bit of a, an anomaly compared to the five we've we've seen. Um, sure. You know, with, with this one, you get uh, you know a look into this. Uh, well, I don't know this world of alchemy, maybe, but also the world of maesters that we haven't seen. You know, we've seen maesters individually, but not as a group. And this whole town of Old Town and what's got what it's got going for us. Um, the citadel, what maesters go through. Right. Uh, we don't get much of a glimpse into it, really, but. Uh, you kind of get an idea for how it all starts out and everything. Right. A scientific element, to be honest, that, that you haven't really explored at all in this series. And then, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we haven't covered it yet, but we will in this in this very episode uh, with A Dance with Dragons. You get uh, some insight into something we've seen a lot of in skin changing, uh, but you don't really you didn't really understand much of the rules or how it worked. Uh, and then you get a you know a deeper look into you know a veteran of that art. So yeah, I, I'm with you. It's it's more like an opportunity to explore a theme that's going to be very important, or a theme or a, a you know some sort of element that, that hasn't been explored deep enough yet that, that you kind of need for for structure of the story. Right. 
And it's super risky, right? A little, a little bit as an introduction to a story. Usually with a story, what you want to do is hook your reader, right? With a, with a, you know, a right. really action packed chapter that, that just kind of grabs you by the balls and won't let you go. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, they're softer openings, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get this angsty teenager who. Oh, he's the worst. Is... This guy. Pate. <laughs> Poor Pate. You know, it reminded me of, uh, you You mentioned, uh, you know, The Sandlot, which is uh, uh, perhaps a more apt comparison. But I thought of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and, and, mm. and, and not actually Romeo's love for Juliet, but the story of Romeo and Juliet opens with a, a lustful obsession with a character named Rosaline. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, something that it, it's very, it reminded me of Pate a lot. It, it's very physical. Uh, you don't get the sense that he knows her really, really well, um, but but he's kind or of, that he cares to, uh, right? He just kind of it seems kind of more like he's lusting after, and um, you know if all you can do is just list the physical qualities that you love that you like, it's lust, not love. You can't you can't be this focused on physically mm-hmm. on a girl. It's not good for you, man. Have we got any fourteen uh, year olds listening to us? It's yeah. Keep it in perspective. Get to know her. Yeah. Get to know her. Yeah. And not just the fleshy parts. With lust, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those are the fun parts, though. So. Oh. Uh, she's got great mom. Um, who's, yeah, great. She's ready to <laughs> yeah, profit mom of, off her beauty. Mom of the year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I, think there's, I think there's a little bit more to Rosie than than maybe meets the eye um you know kind of kind of like kind of like rosaline again going back to the shakespeare kind of drives rosaline is actually the reason romeo goes to the party and meets juliet sees juliet for the first Mm -hmm. time i i think rosie is uh i think she's pushing you know it says that she introduced them but i i think she and she and she and the alchemist are like working together in some way to like entangle Pate. I, I think she's actually leading him on a little bit to ensnare Right, that's Pate. something I don't remember. Yeah, that's something I don't remember on in previous read-throughs that Rosie actually introduced Pate to the alchemist. Yeah, I didn't remember it either, and I don't remember having this thought that she was kind of trying to ensnare him and maybe getting some coin on the side from the alchemist to help, right? Um I definitely get that mm-hmm. sense here. Yeah. yeah. So may- maybe more right. to uh, Rosie than there was to Rosaline, a more uh, a more proactive character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it could be something innocent where she doesn't know a lot, and uh, the alchemist just says something like, hey, that guy checking you out, I'll give you something if you get him over here, right? Yeah, yeah. but she, but let's or go back. Or it could be more back, sinister. Go back to when you were 15. Or something, and like, did did the hot girl flirt with the loser pig faced boy a lot, and like tease him and like lead him on? Mm. She wouldn't know. even look at me, man. <laughs> I didn't say it was you. I was hoping you were looking off in the distance at some other poor <laughs> fucking sap. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure it was me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Pretty sure. So they they talk yeah, if about if I wasn't as you know. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Go ahead. Well, no, I, w- I had nothing important to say. I, I was just I was just going to go on to just kind of um, you know these friends and they're kind of hanging about and what they talk about and stuff. Um, you know, basically some of these guys are never going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. A couple of them seem like maybe they've got some bright futures, but they're talking about they're talking about dragons and all the different stories. Yeah. It's fun to see how they've how the stories have morphed. They it may, they make it sound like there's tons of dragons, right? There's some in Marine, there's some in Karth, there's some in Astapor. Yeah. And we're we're here giggling, but that's just where Daenerys has been. Yes. Right? And it yeah, it's it seems I I'm kinda of with the kid that says uh I can't remember his name now, the club footed one. Uh uh-huh. he's the one that he says, No, no, there's always there's always a young, beautiful you know, woman wherever they go in these stories. Seems like he's put it together. But uh yeah, some mm-hmm. some of the others maybe maybe less so. I'm excited to learn more about these golden candles or these glass candles, excuse yeah. me. That we're talking about. And Marwin the Mage, who sounds interesting. Right? Yeah. Yes. The the uh We've seen that name come up. Yeah, but... the, the 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 really observant reader might remember Marwin's name being mentioned uh, in past books by Miri Mazdur, which is uh, the the woman that burned in the pyre with Danny's dragon eggs before they hatched. She learned yeah. some of her skills from him, but but other she than learned that, a lot of her stuff from him, right? But other than that, we don't know much about him. He spent some time in the east, I guess, and and the other maesters don't like him. Mm-hmm. But interested to learn more <laughs> about him. Yep. What did you have something to say about the glass candles specifically? No, just that I'm interested in them. It's a it's a fascinating topic. Uh, a really cool line that just kind of gets you. It's like it's like a line that could would be said in the trailer of a movie. Old powers waken, shadows stir. An age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us. An age for gods and heroes. Yeah. Ooh. That was exciting. Uh, yeah, I got goosebumps when I read the An Age for God for Heroes bit. Those glass candles, it's interesting. Yeah. The, the maesters are kind of, they seem kind of like they're against magic. You know, they're like, you know, mm-hmm. every time every time they hear about it, they're like, no, no, look, we have a Valyrian steel link, but it's all bunk. Like, nobody ever learns anything of value. Nobody can reproduce it. It's it's garbage. Like they It's seem the art of history of... Maester Links, right? It's the <laughs> yeah. art history of Maester's Links. Yeah, Sorry for all art history majors. I'm kidding. We love art and we love history. Art history is a little rough. <laughs> um, no, it, it's the glass candles seem like a black mark on their uh, on their eschewing of magic because the stories that uh, again I forgot which kid it is now, but one of the kids kids tells is you know that I think maybe it was Leo Tyrell. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I think you're Leo, who who's talking about like how the light does weird stuff when it shows up, and um, uh, does, doesn't he say that in this chapter? Yep. Yeah, I, it sounds it sounds like they're they're magicy, which is seems like against Maester protocol. Right. Well, it sounds like in the past the Maesters have used them yeah. almost as they use them as kind of a. A way of saying ma- magic isn't real, right? Here's these glass candles that are supposed to be all magic, but see if, if you can light it, bud. Right. And they use it as a teaching tool. Um, 
yeah. other ways too. They they talk about how you know not all knowledge can be obtained and stuff right. like that. But yeah, right. Yeah, right. They're old though. I mean, ostensibly they use them for magic at some point because mm-hmm. I mean they came over uh, before the doom of Bal- doom of Illyria. Um, anyway, uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And with that line about you know the old powers awakening and stuff, it it feels like we're slowly starting to ramp up our look into the mystical and magical world of A Song of Ice and Fire, which uh, until now has been a fairly slow burn. Right? We've had the we had like we mentioned the others who are brought up in the prologue. and really not a whole lot. We have some Melisandre uh, in here every once in a while. Such, um, but really, it, it kind of feels like the mystical side of a song of ice and fire is maybe going to come out more here. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I, I like half agree with you and I half disagree with you. It feels like we have mm. all the ingredients for a magical fucking party, but like mm-hmm. we're not told how to use them or something. Uh, it's a bad analogy, maybe. But like we have giants, we have children of the forest, we have you know warging, we have dragons, we have others. We have, you know, uh, these candles and we, we've grumpkins mm-hmm. maybe. We've got kind of all these different components of of a magic-y kind of amazing, fantastic universe. But, but totally. like we, we never get the details to, like, relish in them. Like, Come on! Tell me a goddamn right. fairy story, George! I'm dying for one! <laughs> You know, like he just kind of like, which is what he does, right? Yeah, he's just like teasing them out. It's terrible Mm -hmm. and awesome at the same time. Yeah, wouldn't be here if we didn't love it. He never has one of those passages that's just like, okay, I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to explain everything to the end, and then we're going to move on with the story, which is part of his brilliance, and it can be incredibly frustrating too. Which is he feels he fills in those little details just. Kind of when he wants to, right? He's got the narrative of the actual story. The POV characters live in their lives and everything and going through their arcs. And then he just like shoves and shoehorns little things in there, right? Yeah. It's, it's in, we've talked about it before how he does that. Uh, I think we first noticed it clear back when we started Game of Thrones. Yeah. But it's pretty dang cool how he does it. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to bring up... Um... Something, something with with Pate. Um, he he keeps he 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 notes he notes the nightingale calls early, and he also notes the mm-hmm. call of the bells. Mm-hmm. And he he kind of compares them. I think toward the end, where he, he says something about the bells uh, couldn't be as sweet a song as the nightingale. And I think it's a it's it's a really interesting metaphor for what Pate's dealing with here. When he thinks the the alchemist isn't going to show up, and he hears the bells, it's like he's being called back to his old life that he thought he was going to try to escape, right? right? And the nightingale mm-hmm. represents, you know, moving in a different, beautiful sounding direction, right? And yeah, he's committed, and there's this anticipation and excitement, right? And, and yet the bells just call him back, yeah, and he can't resist them like a siren song, right? And I, I, it the morning me, after. Yes. <laughs> it reminded me of a conversation I had with a couple of my uh, roommates, my first roommates in college, uh, Kelby and Steve. Uh, 
And they, they Kelby. got him, Kelby. Yeah. I, I remember I got the letter saying, uh, saying it just gives you basically your roommate's names. It was like Kelby. And I was like, this guy, he sounds like a linebacker. He, he, mm-hmm. ended, he ended up being like a, you know, five, five foot eight, skinny as a rail, like a kicker band member. Um, amazing guy. <laughs> He's just so awesome. But anyway, uh, they got in a heated argument, my two roommates, about being able to just walk away from something, being able to just pick up your life and go, and how, and, and Kelby mm. was saying, like, it's easy, you just do it, you just go, you just walk, you just pick up and you just go, you leave things behind, and Steve was like, there's entanglements, and you can't just do that, there's things you're leaving behind, and responsibilities, and and I remember that, I remember that argument when I was listening to this, it's like, he just, even though he seems to know he has no future, and know that he doesn't really even like what he's doing, he's still being called back by these bells, even though they're uglier sounding than the nightingale. It's ama- It's an amazing metaphor. I loved it. How we, yeah, and we do it to ourselves, right? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I'm glad you picked up on that. Very cool. Well, have we talked this prologue to death, Scad? Yes, I just have one, one more funny thing. Hope, well, hopefully it's mm. funny. Yeah, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> The night is damp and the cobblestones will be slippery. It reminded me of the night is dark and full of terrors. It's like the nerd science mastery view. <laughs> the night is damp and the cobblestones will be slippery. Beware. No terror, just moisture. <laughs> just, just, it's scientifically explainable. It's moisture and they'll be slippery. Just be careful. Classic. Yeah. Love it. Yep. Uh, right. Yeah. Anything else? I don't think so. It's All fun, right. but we talked this one to death. My sweet Rosie. Yep. Okay. Uh, next is a Dance with Dragons prologue. That's me, the scad. Yes, sir. Okay. Prologue. Got my feeling kind of anxious. Prologue. Am I going to make it out of this alive? Prologue. Feeling kinda anxious. Prologue, am I gonna make it out of this alive? The night was rank with the smell of men, as this podcast has now become. Mm-hmm. A warg hunts with his pack, not with, as his pack, alternating between and among the three wolves at will. They were all starving, though they now had the scent of men and the hunt was on. The three wolves surprise the three humans in the delicious, fleshy baby and make short work of them. Snack back to reality, Other goes ferocity, and here we are left with Veramir Sixskins, whom you probably remember as the Ice Animal Menagerie General of Mance Raider. At the peak of his powers, he was a skin changer that had uh, hold of a shadow cat, three wolves, an eagle, and a giant snow bear under his control. Now, however, he lie, he lays there starving, bleeding, dying, really, on the floor of a hut. They say a man reflects on his life as he dies, and reflect Veramore does deeply. I'm just giving you kind of a bullet point list here of the things that he kind of reflects on as he's dying there by the fire. He remembers his childhood when he killed his younger brother by skin-changing the family dog and was sent away by his family to live with another skin-changer named Hagon. He remembers his youth growing up, being taught the ins and outs of skin changing by Hagon. Uh, 
a man that preached of the many abominations in the craft and warned him of those abominations, the worst being the seizing of another man's skin. Hmm, we've seen that before. Hagon taking him to Eastwatch to trade, and Verimer getting kind of his first taste of the South and kind of his first longing for it. He remembers killing Hagon, his teacher, depriving him of his skin changer's second life. We'll talk more about the second life later. And he remembers his adulthood. He's a scourge of the North, taking the women he wants, killing those that stood in his way. He's a real man of power. And more recently, he recalls the flight from the Wall as his companions were slain by crows, Baratheon men, others, and even each other. And finally, how he was stabbed by a child for stealing a Goram squirrel cloak from his dead mother. So, fighting for clarity, he plots his next move. This body, Varamir's body, he knows it won't last. He knows it, and he needs to transfer to another being permanently. This is what the skin changers call a second life. When they take a second life, they become truly one with a single animal, but it allows them to live beyond their own death, slowly kind of fading into that other beast. He could leverage any one of the wolves uh, that he's got uh, under his control, probably one that he calls One-Eye. He's the oldest, and he's the pack leader and the strongest. But he has another option. Thistle. His last remaining human companion, the woman that sewed up his injury, she would be a second life that he could really dwell in, but also an abomination as Hagon's lessons ring in his ears. He passes out in the snow as he waits for her return, is he, and, he, and he looks for food and warmth in the village. He's just laying there hoping for Thistle's return. He almost dies there in the snow and in his thoughts, but he is shaken awake by Thistle, and he seizes his chance, forcing himself into her, trying to wrest the body from her control. But she fights. Harder than the Shadow Cat fought when he warped the Shadow Cat, or skin changed the Shadow Cat. Harder than the Snow Bear fought. She flails and kicks and claws at her own eyes, clawing them out entirely, spits out her own tongue. In the end, Varamir dies, and his essence drifts to his pack, Thistle being a used-up husk that he can't use. Drifts to his pack to One-Eye, and One-Eye looks back toward Varamir and sees whites. Thistle is a white, and it's creepy. And that's the end of the chapter. Super creepy. Yeah. What a creepy chapter in general. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of it's kind of hard to find a ton of stuff to talk about. Uh, I agree. <laughs> because in this portion of the podcast in this portion of the podcast for sure i mean it's basically a lot of background about skin changing um i kind of mm-hmm. i kind of rushed through them a little bit but the abominations that Hagen uses um eating a man's flesh is an abomination mating with a wolf while you're a wolf so like getting it on doggy style while and, you're a doggy and um, don't you love how Varamir switches off while they're in the heat of the moment, like sometimes they'll switch over to the girl to see yes. how it feels. Yes, back to the guy. It's yeah, like, he actually notes he's... there's something wrong with you, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's got. I feel not that I'm not judging anyone's sexual proclivities here. I just think that Varamir himself has some. He's got some issues going on with power, he sure with does. struggling yeah. for control, with. Uh, yeah, with with receiving love, and uh, he he's got some real issues just as a person. Um, but I think that comes from being a skin changer and being able to exercise a certain amount of power. 
uh, over creatures and liking the taste of that power, right? Right, which is, mm-hmm. you know, going a little bit on a tangent, you know, one of the reasons that I fear a little bit for Bran, as we've seen, you know, what he's able to yeah. do and, and the fact that he's such a young kid and how quickly that kind of power and that kind of control with people not being able to tell you no, uh, it's mm-hmm. it's dangerous, right? And And we've seen here what can become of a man that has that and um you know Veramir Veramir is it, it makes a point in the chapter he's probably the most powerful skin changer around or that he's ever met at least but man what well, yeah what a little penis wrinkle murders his brother maybe worse his teacher because he had a real connection with his teacher you know been raised by him basically you know no well, not f- only does he murder them but he then sought to maliciously deny Hagon's second life, yes, right? right? It wasn't enough to just kill his Hagon's body. It was to end his existence. Yeah. As far as he knew. And that's yeah. just like, man, a penis wrinkle, like you said. Yeah. It's what he is. He, you just you just get the sense that there's like no human compassion within him. Just a, like a complete narcissist. Right. Like someone I know yeah. maybe taking office soon. Um but Bert, what? Uh, I don't know the, the whole second life thing. What do you think of it? Uh, let, here, let me hmm. let me give you a lead off. I think I'd pass, man. Like you go from being this yeah. all powerful guy that can like fly and inhabit whomever and however he wants, and then and then you're like. Even in the best case scenario, you're like, yeah, I'll be Thistle now, with a warty chin and hair yeah, growing and, out of it. And and he talks about how you slowly kind of lose your own identity, right, as you become the yeah. thing you worked into. Yeah. And it's like, hey, dude, it's like I just, I I just want to die, me, right? <laughs> yeah. <I don't>... yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's it. I don't want to die me i don't want to be someone else even if it means living longer well then maybe i don't want to live longer yeah uh, and maybe that nonchalance about it comes from maybe a belief in the afterlife or something uh well right so i uh, struggled with that for those that don't know i'm an atheist if it comes to that point like i'm done right yeah i was but, gonna ask but, you what are your thoughts well, on it then even me Someone i'm like i share that uh, even me yeah i would be thinking like oh because i've said things about uh, you know about keeping myself alive and on, you know, on respirators and things like that. Like this is it for, for me, you know, with, with, with my belief structure, like right. this is it. So like, you know, don't, don't take me off of anything, <laughs> you know, like this is all I got. <laughs> um, you know, there are exceptions. There's to a that. chance I'm coming back. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's, there's exceptions to that. If there's no chance then, you know, whatever, but I got dark real fast. <laughs> Save us. Um, but uh I, I, even me, I don't. I don't think I'd take it. I, I don't think. I don't, I don't think I'd want to be in this other, especially coming from being a skin changer, where I had all this control and power. I don't think I'd want to become a husk of myself inside someone else. It seems. I don't want to share, man. Ugh. Right. Yeah. Not. I'm not. I'm not in it. But how? How, how about? How about such a germ way to kill off a man with such power? stabbed by a kid as he went for a meaningless cloak yeah <laughs> just like this man of immense power and uh no you're going to be stabbed by a child and die of your wound. 
which we've talked about this before. He's done it in other cases. This one's very poignant, but uh, now I can't think of one, of course. Oh, like someone like Hoster Tolley, you know, who is apparently this wonderful, great lord. Yeah. And he doesn't get a glorious death. He just gets sick and dies because he's old and sick. And that's yeah. it. See you yeah. later. But, yeah, totally. And then and then he's denied his second life, apparently. Uh, no, he gets it. Because the... the yeah, it's kind of he, essence, right? He Well, he, gets, he joins into one eye, right? Do we disagree about this? Oh boy. Maybe we disagree about this. So 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 my impression of the way this chapter is written is that he tries he tries to uh skin change uh Thistle, is rejected, like mm-hmm. loses the battle because she's too strong of fighting, and he's maybe essentially too weak to take her because of his body's so weak. And then kind of his essence floats on the wind through a bunch of other things owls and squirrels and other stuff kind of kind of like um oh no what's that movie called with the the devil uh geez the denzel washington one uh where the devil can like jump from body to body you probably didn't see it because you hate that kind of stuff but kind of like it, it, he he flows between. It's these a horror animals. movie. I haven't seen it. Right. Well, it's it's yeah. more of like a suspense thing. But the devil's in it. Yeah. But anyway, he. Uh, I, my impression was that he floats even through trees and animals and stuff, and then lands in one of the animals that he's got under his thrall. One eye. And yeah. He's now yeah. One eye. Talks about how true death came suddenly. I just opened up the book. Uh, he felt a shock of cold. Da, da, da. Then he found himself rushing over snows with his pack mates. Right. One eye. He knew. Yep. Right. So yeah, he wasn't denied his his second life, but he was denied he was denied a second life of of stature that he was hoping for. Right. <laughs> Which was thistle. Right, thistle, the thistle meister. Oh, poor the thistle. Thiss. Like, right? What she's she's like finally somebody showing some loyalty, you know, like to somebody that deserves none. Like, why does she keep coming back uh-huh. to this guy? You know. And, uh, yeah, she's basically murdered for it. Yeah. But I like what, I like that you brought up the brand thing. Um, because if anything, you know, you, you read through this chapter and you're like, what, why, why are we spending all this time on Vermeer? Long chapter. And you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? But you can't help but think of Bran as you're reading it. And, and John. he talks, you think about John too. I thought most about Bran, but yeah, definitely John. Um, well, he references but like, John in how, there, but yeah. Yeah, he talks about how Ghost would be a killer second life, right? And and how the moment he um, met John, he knew he was a he was a powerful war, just untrained. Just knew, yeah, yeah. And he talks about how wolves are harder to get, you know, to start that relationship with, right? To skin change into a wolf is difficult. Yeah, he says a dog is easy, uh, a wolf but is yet, harder. It, and, and it didn't I don't remember it being that difficult for Bran and for John. Yeah. Uh, we got that little glimpse in A Storm of Swords where Bran for just an instant goes into Hodor, right? Yeah, right. Um abomination. And, and you think this yeah, abomination. This seems easy if we could say that for Bran almost effortless yeah. for Bran yet Varamir 
Gardner is obviously having some kind of difficulty. Uh, I yeah. guess we could say that uh, Hodor's maybe a little bit more simple-minded, and maybe that played a part in Branzies and getting in there. And, I don't know. And Veramir's on his deathbed. But And Veramir's very weak. But yeah, it, it, it makes you worry a little bit. You yeah. understand that there are greater implications to yeah. what Bran is doing and potential yeah. consequences. You see, like you said, how the power has corrupted Veramir. Uh, perhaps maybe he's just kind of like that, but you start to see that maybe this isn't this freewheeling, fun, cool thing that Bran as a child may consider it to be. Yeah. I I think you can take Veramir's statement about the wolves to be one of two things, probably not both either as a warning, like, Hey, you reader know that there are at least a few characters in this book that are regularly, warging their dire wolves mm-hmm. and dire wolves are probably harder to control than regular wolves and look what we just heard about wolves you can't tame them they're always fighting mm-hmm. you and they're always a risk look out because they're going to turn on their owners so you can even look at it as a warning but more likely i think it's where you were headed you're supposed to look at this as an endorsement of brands and to a lesser extent i think some of the other stark children Uh, Mm -hmm. an endorsement for their power they can do this more effortlessly than you're supposed to be able to do it so either they have special powers or the wolves are making it easy because the wolves are special and you know that whole the way they found them in the snow is like some sort of you know the destiny of of it all right so you know some sort of literary crap um but but given what you said about hodor and how easy it is for him you know comparing it to how veramir failed it it all it feels it feels more like it's a statement about how strong the Stark kids are, specifically Bran, but but maybe all of them. Right. Yep. So crazy. You crazy. got uh, you got other stuff? Not really. Like you said, there's not a ton yeah. to talk about in this one. Right. So. Okay. Well, we'll move on to John one then, and this is again me. Mm-hmm. Enjoy my dulcet tones. Oh, I will. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom but we love his wolf He's John Snow Ugh, wolves again? Fracking A right, wolves again, ghosts this time Hunting, and he senses (laughs) his pack mates hunting as well Shaggy Dog eats a goat he killed, and Nymeria sings at the moon with her giant pack of cousins. Four remained, and one the white wolf could no longer sense. Ghost continually hears the word snow, but shuns it, hiding in a cave until finally it is too much, and John Snow wakes up, a raven on his chest. Mormont's old raven. John has been summoned to see Stannis, so even breakfast will wait. As John prepares for seeing Stannis, he thinks on the wildling host still at large beyond the wall, though more surrender daily. He also considers the rumors going about Castle Black, that Melisander wants to burn two kings, Mance, then his babe. Two kings for the price of one or something. Now, how many times do people have to tell them wildling kings don't work that way? Apparently, gotta keep telling him. <laughs> Finally, he thinks on the wolf dreams that he just Good had. Lord, yeah, <laughs> they're really stubborn. Uh, he thinks on the wolf dreams, coming to grips with Greywind being dead and Summer and Shaggy Dog alive. 
He knows that they are more than dreams, that he understands from them that Ghost knows things. But for some reason, he doesn't really dwell on the fact that he can learn from these dreams. So on the walkover, he sees stewards fixing the switchback stair that was destroyed during the defense of Castle Black against wildlings from the south side. He also sees Iron Emmett training the raw recruits and takes heart. Emmett is trusty and has a passion for fighting. He's also challenged to his own fight, to sparring by one of Stannis's men, but takes the high road as John is wont to do. So he arrives, and Stannis is in a foul mood. Shocker. And mm. John isn't going to help, turning him away at every turn. First Lannimormont, current ruler of Bear Island, apparently, and current ten-year-old, has brutally rebuffed Stannis' approaches for aid and loyalty. Apparently, she is one of many, with uh, only the Karstarks coming to his aid at this point. John is left to counsel the much older Stannis on patience, on empathy, essentially expressing the cost-benefit analysis that all the northern houses face in choosing whether or not to give homage to Stannis. They've got to think about their small folk, and who's really going to win this war, and all these other things. It makes sense that they're showing caution. Stannis even, at one point, seems to hit John up for money in one of the more unintentionally Stannis-y moments. Uh, but nope, we don't, we don't have any money, just turnips. So Stannis continues on his path of misguided righteousness, indicating that he plans to burn Mance and use his son, the future king, as leverage. Wrong again, sire. That's not how king in the north works. It's all prelude to this, though. All of that, all of that raging disappointment burning within Stannis is all prelude to this moment. Stannis has asked John, in fact, requires that John sign over the rights to the remaining castles on the wall so he can garrison them and reward his knights for being loyal to him. He can reward his knights with them. John, you ask too much. John puts it best, though. And I'll just read it real quick. The knights watched built those castles to defend the wall. Not as seats for southern lords. The stones of those forts are mortared with the blood and bones of my brothers long dead. I cannot give them to you. John knows that there would be a lot of consequences, uh, in addition to just his, himself being written down in the history books as the one that gave away the forts if he were to do this, and he, he knows he can't do it. He does, though, agree that the castle should be garrisoned, and he turns the begging bowl back towards Stannis. He grabs the begging bowl away from Stannis and turns it back toward him, saying, Hey! Give me men to fortify the castles, please. He's done nothing but turn Stannis down all chapter, giving nothing. And then he has the gall to beg Stannis for men, and it's hilarious. Stannis balks at that, though. Serve the watch under poachers and thieves? His men would never stand for it. And then Stannis turned his refusal into a threat. Garrison these castles within the year, or I'm taking them myself. John is escorted back by Melisander. She admires the wall and the secret magics within, talks about her god, and finally issues a warning herself to John. He has enemies he doesn't suspect. She has seen it in her fires. Daggers in the dark. And that is the end of the chapter. Oh, heavens. Yes! Stannis! I love you! Oh my gosh, Scott, he's so insufferable. I just couldn't stand him this chapter. He is. Oh. He is. I just... I just hate him. No, oh, it's it's more like, uh, well, you know, Melisander kind of has a moment there at the end where um, she, as soon as they, they leave the, the room with Stannis, she says something to him like, he's growing fond of you. <laughs> it's it's more like, it, 
you know what it is? Stannis is just getting scantankerous. That's all it is. He's just he's just grumbly. He knows he's wrong. He's just grumbling. He's just grumble. It's it's like uh, oh, he's... you know what? It, it's a strategy that you use a lot in negotiation. Like uh, maybe he set up all those things that he knew John was gonna like shut him down on to ask the last one in hopes that he would be like, oh, I've said nothing but no. Fine, maybe I'll find. I've just, said no. I've said no yeah. so many times. I gotta say yes at some point. I'll. I'll give him this one. It's a negotiating tactic. Maybe Stannis was trying that, but I don't know if we, could, we should give him that much credit. He's generally just well, kind of a, yeah. I think we've seen enough of Stannis to know that he, he's kind he's of a, just, he, just the way he is. He's kind of he's kind of a, a more violent and aggressive Eeyore. Yeah. <laughs> Stannis Baratheon with a grievance was like a mastiff with a bone. He <laughs> yes. nodded down to splinters. John thinks. Yes. So eloquent. Yes. So eloquent. Very much, and you know, and, go ahead. Dang Stannis and his and his honesty and everything. If he would just approach some of these requests in a different way, he might get a different response. Like, instead of just demanding these castles and saying he needs to give them to his lords, maybe go with John on it and say, hey, if you give us these castles, we can help you fulfill your duty as the Night's Watch and help you defend against the others that are coming. Yeah. Uh, which Stannis is there to do. Uh, he can't forget that. John shouldn't forget that. Melisandre hasn't forgotten that. They are there because something is coming from beyond the wall, and they're trying to stop that. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like if Stannis would just practice just a sh- shred of diplomacy, he might have a little more success. Yeah, so part of me thinks that he's just like... I'm the king, damn it! I don't have to be diplomatic. Like, I don't give me my have shit to be diplomatic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but doesn't work that way though. <laughs> yeah, well, because because the wall is outside of his domain, technically. Um, yeah. So you know, it's kind of yeah, it's it's very interesting the way he approaches this whole thing. I was gonna, I was just going back to just complaining about Stannis just a little bit more. Uh huh. Where um, <laughs> John's finally like, "Your grace, I've housed your men. We've." fed them from our own winter stores we've clothed them so that they would not afraid so they would not freeze and stannis is like yeah you've shared your salt pork and porridge and you've thrown us some black rags to keep us warm oh my god but that's all negotiation right (laughs) like downplay what the other side has done like this is all like classic negotiation stuff it's it's kind of it's kind of hilarious to read my favorite moment by far though is the moment where john begs back (laughs) <laughs> where he's like, no, 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 now it's my turn to ask you for something. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, it's almost like, give me the, give me people, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, how about, how about uh, all this uh, wanting to burn the two kings? Like, what the fuck happened oh, to yeah. one? Back on Dragonstone, it was just Edric. He's not even a king. Like, uh-huh. and that was going to be enough. Why do they need two now? It's called moving the goalposts. That's another business term. Yeah, everybody. that's what I was going to say. You're moving the goalposts. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I don't know what the, I, well, I, I just, they, things like that where they move the goalposts and like, you're like, is that a writing error or what? Because religion, power, truth. I mean, Melisander knows all these things. She's seen them all. It's a weird thing. Like they're, they're the ones, the ones that come to, to fight and, and rescue the wall. Like they're supposed to mm-hmm. like, it's a weird thing you're kind of like set up to dislike these guys, kind of like you've been railing against Stannis this whole time and how Melisander's just like so creepy in her own way. You're kind of set up right. to, to, to distrust and dislike these guys, but 
it's kind of like rooting against confirmed religion. Like you've seen, <laughs> you've seen their power. Like you've seen, you know that they know and can do shit. And yet you're like, eh, I don't know. I, I kind of don't. Oh, but I he's so think, insufferable. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. And Melisandre had a shadow baby that killed uh, one of our favorite characters who was only around for a chapter. Yeah. yeah. No, I under- understand what you mean completely. And that's that hit me on this read through is we've always think of Melisandre as you kind of think of her as a bad guy. You know, if we look at good guys in the sense of wanting to stop others, if we look at Melisandre's a good guy. Yeah. And uh, and and by association standing too. Just the more the more and more I look at this literarily and just how how we are kind of set up to dislike these guys even though they are the heroes. Mm-hmm. The more and more I'm just like Right. Are the others the bad guys? I just ah, right. I just don't. It's it's just it's so clear literarily that that he wants us to like angst against these characters that it makes me feel like uh-huh. what they're fighting for may not even be the right thing. Like it's a whole red herring. I don't know. That's this is all maybe more Davos after dark stuff. But we've never heard the other side of this story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I agree with you. But. How about the, how about the ghost dreaming stuff? Mm. I well, I was I was I was just John's no dummy, right? I mean, maybe he's not a really deep thinker. I don't know. I'll probably get shit for saying that, but like, he wakes up from this dream. He realizes that he's learned things from the dream, but he doesn't he doesn't like dwell on what it means that he can dream as a freaking wolf. Mm-hmm. Like. Wake up, man! Like there's some there's something normal people don't do this. Like why doesn't he see that this is something special and like something that he should be talking to someone about or exploring or? It's like he doesn't even know he's doing it still, or, or doesn't know. You know what I mean? Right. You're right. And part of it just goes to where he's at right now. His whole situation. Yeah, he's busy. Where he's got a lot of immediate concerns on his mind. Uh, the nights, and it's not just like normal day-to-day nights watch stuff. It's really weird situational stuff where, you know, all of a sudden they're sharing their food and their, you know, and everything with this king who's staying for who knows how long. And then he's got to deal with the political side of dealing with that king and stuff like that. And then you've got the wildlings mixed into it too that they're dealing with. A good portion of influential people in the Night's Watch do not like him. And so he's got that to worry about too. And yeah, you know, us looking at him from our perspective, want to like shake him a little bit and go, this is really cool, man. You need to realize this. But uh, for young, how old is he now? 16, 17? Yeah, I think he's this is, 17 or 16. This is a lot on his mind. Yeah, he's kind of a practical guy. I, I picked that up in this chapter, he is. and we can pick yeah. it up other times too. He's, he's more of a practical thinker, unlike maybe Bran. Right. Yeah, yeah. He kind of leaves the philosophy out of it, deals with what he sees. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I while you were talking, I just, I just came to this. Um, I had a note that was kind of tangential to this, but Ghost runs, kind of like tries to hide from the from the word snow. You know, like he kind of tries to stay away from it and, and doesn't want to acknowledge it. Kind of hmm. the same way Bran is reluctant to come back from summer. Like they shake him awake and stuff, and he, he's like, no, nah, I want to stay, you know. And have to keep kind of coaxing him to mm-hmm. come back. It's almost like it's almost like Ghost is trying to keep 
John there. John there? Like, hey, dumbass, mm-hmm. stay with me and learn how to do this. It's cool. I want you inside of me. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, like, like, you like the roles are reversed. Like Bran, Bran's a natural. He's slipping into summer. Yep. He knows it's summer probably at some point. He's like, get the hell out of here. But Ghost is like, you need to learn how to do this. And tries to like keep him there. Which again is super interesting to read this chapter right after the Varamir chapter. Right. And what we talked about wolves. That instead of resisting or being this this quiver, uh, like, come on in, buddy. Almost coaxing him. And and you wonder, is there some sort of influence where Ghost is mentally or somehow metaphysically like coaxing John into skin changing into him right. without John really knowing, which is an avenue we really haven't explored yet. Yeah. Ugh, all very interesting. Yeah. All right. Should we move on? Uh, Got anything else? Yeah. Oh, we, we had Liana Mormont. Yeah, we did. Liana her Mormont. little, her little coolness. Yeah. But, A little badass. I don't know if there's much more to say about her. One thing that's interesting, though, and is that Mage has an, her second oldest sister. We don't know where she is. Uh, she didn't come south. She presumably stayed at Bear Island. Yeah. Uh, so maybe she's not around right now, and Liana's in charge. But I would think that Alisane would be the one replying to that that letter. Uh, so interesting that we get the 10-year-old replying. But. I'm sure she's just out fucking, fucking a bear somewhere. Yeah. More women do. Yeah. But yeah, happy note. speculation. Who knows where she is? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Uh, move on to the prophet. That's yours. Wash me clean. Take me down to the depths of your watery halls so I can drink in your ways. What's dead may never die, but arises harder and stronger will I. Okay, let's get the formalities out of the way first of all. The prophet, as referenced in the chapter heading, is one Aaron Greyjoy, a younger brother of Balon Greyjoy, who we remember from a cock as Theon's dad. Aaron, who's also known as the Damp Hair because of his long, uncut hair that is constantly wet from all the time Aaron spends in the water, is drowning men at a beach on Great Wick. This is a practice in which a worshiper of the drowned god is held below the water by a priest of the drowned god, who Aaron happens to be, until he drowns. It's like a really severe baptism, I guess. The priest then resuscitates him with what appears to be a form of CPR. And through this initiation, the person is meant to become stronger. The common refrain is, What is dead may never die, but rises again, harder and stronger. So Gormond Goodbrother, son of one of Great Wick's lords, appears to bring Aaron. Uh, back to his father at their castle, saying that a raven had arrived with news only for Aaron's ears. Aaron's initially like, I'm drowning people here, no thanks. But he changes his tune when the messenger tells him that King Balon, Aaron's brother, is dead, fallen from a rope bridge while crossing towers at Pike. Now this hits Aaron rather hard as we find out that Aaron had built his life upon two pillars and those pillars appear to be the drowned god and Balon, or at least the line of secession that Balon comes from. 
Now, one of those pillars has been dashed. So during the journey to Good Brothers Hall, uh, Aaron remembers his brothers, born of his uh, dad's second wife. There were five of them, Balon, Euron, Victarion, Uragon, and Aaron. He remembered Balon as bold, fierce, and fearless, living only to restore glory to the Ironborn. Only the Storm God, eternal enemy of the Drowned God, could have killed Balon, Aaron concludes. So when they arrive at Lord Goodbrother's Hall at Hammerhorn, uh, Lord Goodbrother and his maester inform Aaron that Euron Greyjoy, next eldest brother, has occupied the Sea Stone Chair. Aaron is shocked, and it appears not only at the news, but also at the very mention of Euron, who had been banished from the Iron Isles a couple years back by Balon. Euron is indeed the next eldest brother of the Greyjoy Four, but as the maester points out, both Balon's children, Theon and Asha, have a claim before he does. Now don't forget Victarion, the next eldest brother, and who Aaron seems to regard at least with a little bit more fondness. Uh, and he's also brought into the mix as a potential candidate for the Sea Stone Chair. A good brother wants advice on whom to support, but Aaron wants to pray first and leaves for Pebbleton. So on the way to Pebbleton, Aaron thinks back to his youth. Back in the day, as kids will do, the damp hair was a bit of a partier, renowned especially for his ability to convert alcohol into urine and then release it far and long. Apparently, this guy could pee. He would have been a hit at Boy Scout camps with how this guy could put out fires with his wiener. Uh, this changed when his longship fell victim to Stannis Baratheon's ship Fury during Balon's Rebellion. Aaron was thrown overboard. Uh, later on, after the rebellion, he was also thrown out to sea uh, through circumstances we're not entirely sure of, and he nearly drowned. When he came back, though, uh, he, he experienced some sort of conversion and became a devoted follower of the... Uh, or became a devoted follower of the drowned god. Now, Aaron's thoughts turn to the secession as he's trudging along to Pebbleton, which he had discussed previously with Balon before, obviously before Balon's death. Now, Balon, we found out, we find out, actually wanted Asha. He saw a lot of bit of himself in her and thought she had the uh, gumption to rule the Iron Islands. But Aaron sagely concludes, women were made to fight their battles in the birthing bed. Oh, how I wish we could uh, have a recorded sample of Brooke groaning so that I could insert it right here. So in his mind, Ash is out. Now, Theon, well, he may have the best claim as the uh, oldest living son of Balon, but he wasn't exactly leader material. And, I mean, who even knows where Theon is right now, anyways? There's Euron, but Aaron is way against Euron taking over, who he considers godless, but also who he seems to regard with a certain amount of trepidation, a fear going back years. Now, he finds Victarion to be godly, a warrior, fearless and dutiful. Probably the best choice they've got, and the only one who stands a chance if it comes to violence 
uh, from Euron, who's not going to give up that sea stone chair easy. So a few days later, Aaron has arrived at Pebbleton and begins to preach, as he's wont to do. And it's there he finds out that Asha, uh, Balon's daughter, has also laid claim to the throne. So you've got Euron, who's apparently sitting on the sea stone chair, Asha, who's laid claim to it, and now Aaron's followers, a number of lords living in the surrounding areas, are looking to him for advice on whom to support. Aaron goes out to see, to, to pray and commune with the drowned god, and it's then that inspiration hits him. The Ironborn need to go vintage. They need to go NES classic. They need to go back to the old way and elect a new king via Kingsmoot. Kingsmoot? What's that? It's an apparently not quite democratic way of electing a new king. Basically, anyone who's a captain of a ship can vote. And uh, they vote for, for nominees. Aaron's assertion is met with wild support from his followers, the small folk, bleh, the small folk, and even the petty lords who turned out to hear his counsel. So he decrees that every captain is to go to Naga's Hill on Old Wick, the ancient place where the old kings were chosen uh, all those years back when king's moots were common. Aaron hears his followers take up his call, and in that moment he knows he's done the right thing. End of chapter. Yeah. Uh, so we've we've got our uh, a look back at the Ironborn, who we haven't really seen. Have we seen anything of them since uh, since a cock? No, I don't. I feel like I feel like we haven't. Um, I, you know, the books kind of run right. together for me a little bit now that we've been doing this podcast, exactly. but. Uh, no, we haven't certainly haven't seen much of them, and yeah, th this is almost it's it's almost like like another prologue chapter. It's like here's an mm. introduction to a whole culture you don't know a ton about. Here you go, you know, new character, new yeah, religion, yeah. new characters, new islands, uh, you know, new motivations. Drink it in. It's it's kind of it's almost like a prologue chapter. It's interesting. That's true. Yeah. Uh, on that note, interesting. Do you like what you read? Uh, I remember not loving the Ironborn chapters initially. Uh, the, you know, and I kind of liked it this time. The, our listeners, our dedicated listeners, dutiful members of the Colossar know that I struggle with the religion stuff. I particularly mm -hmm. struggle with this religion where you drowned your subjects. Um, <laughs> it's the kookiest though perhaps the easiest explained by the people's circumstances. They have a hard, hard life. Yeah. And however you believe, either the religion that they have that, that's, that's, that's shaped them has you know, kind of turned them toward this hard life, or the hard life has, has helped them form this set of religious beliefs. And you know, I, think, I think a lot of the religions are maybe a combination of those things, being you know, some sort of inspiration that came from somewhere and also informed by the lifestyle that kind of fills in the gaps. And I think that's certainly the case here. Um, so you know, I struggle with the religion stuff sometimes. But, mm -hmm. but uh, damn fair, as, as I called him until uh, I started talking to anyone <laughs> about these books, um, because I'm an idiot and didn't realize that he's always in the water and has damp hair. Um, <laughs> hey, you put a P next to an H? That's, that's English, a, buddy. That's a fuss sound. It's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, 
any any fans of the of the show write write me and commiserate if you did the same thing um but uh he he's an interesting guy he's he's an interesting character and so while the ironborn themselves are a culture that I don't really love and I you know I am interested to kind of see where they go they certainly have a you know I think a a place in the story for sure going forward I hope that's not too big of a spoiler but um he's an interesting guy and so I find this chapter pretty engaging as iron as ironborn chapter one thing go. that yeah yeah I think germ did a good job of, of picking him to be the POV yeah. right uh in in a series of books where everyone's lusting for power and control and everything, Aaron doesn't seem all that interested in that kind of stuff for himself, right? Oh yeah. He's, in fact, they tell him he who, should do who's it. Who's going to be the best? Yeah. yeah and he's like yeah. trying to think of who the best guy is going to be for all of us. Yeah. Right. And it's like, oh, that's kind of refreshing in a way. You're kind of a weird, kooky guy. Yeah. But that outlook's a little refreshing. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, yeah he, and he seems to, to genuinely care. Yeah, they nominate him, and he's like, no, 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 no. God gave me the staff. That's not my role to yeah. play. You know, we, we got to find somebody who's who was born to do this kind of thing. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, he brings up this king's moot, uh, and, uh, you know, he he, uh, he walked into the water and, and believes that his god kind of informed on him <laughs> that you need to listen to your bones, and the bones of Naga, um, you know, Will, will tell you and and so that that's a, a hint to him that the king's will tell them where to go which which i think he you know he believes will be a divinely inspired moment i think right he right. believes that this this experience in the king's going back to the old way the drowned god won't 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 bend them the wrong way and uh yeah i think mm-hmm. he's really happy with it and he feels i think i think it's been a it's been a crazy day for him and he feels drained at not having a good solution presented and this jumps at him and he's like yeah exactly this is exactly let's what do we it need. let's do it yeah well and it, and it kind of takes some of the pressure off of him too right oh yeah absolutely and Everyone's and everyone him, who do we support? and everyone who, who do we support it diff- yeah. it diffuses it diffuses the potential conflict which um in the good brother castle i can't remember if it was good brother of the maester saying you know we can't spill each other's blood or whatever actually it might have been Dampere himself saying, you know, we can't spill each other's blood. Um, this diffuses that. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, none of the candidates that have thrown their hats in the ring can say, no, I refuse this old custom where we, you know, we let our God and our people decide. I, I refuse. It's mine. Nobody can say that. They'd be immediately discredited by the people that believe in these things, right? And so it takes, it diffuses the violent situation that could come up. Yes, sir. It indeed does. Yeah. Speaking of violent situations, uh, effects of drinking seawater, as oh. Aaron tends to do. Yes. What are? I, when I read that, I was like, "He's drinking seawater. Yuck!" I didn't even think to go into a scientific look. <laughs> Professor Matt, hit us with it. And it says the human kidneys are only capable of making urine that is less salty than salt water. Therefore, you know, to get rid of all the excess salt that you take in by drinking seawater, you actually have to urinate more water than you drank. So you eventually dehydrate you dehydrate, yourself, yeah. even though you're, you're more thirsty. Right. Like you're getting thirstier and thirstier, right. but you're dehydrating yourself the more you drink. 
So it kills you. So I don't know. He so he's as magic as Melisandre is then. Or you know, maybe <laughs> maybe the anatomy of the Ironborn. Maybe they have like yeah. these high functioning kidneys <laughs> after thousands of years of drinking seawater that their kidneys can handle it. They're all wearing but, a colostomy uh, bag on their <laughs> hip, exactly walking around. <laughs> uh, that's why he could pee so well. He was using some <laughs> sort of a sprayer. The stuff of legend. Switch. (laughs) And the kiss of life, didn't that just feel like CPR? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it's interesting they even called it the kiss of life. I mean, I think, isn't that what they call Beric Dondarrion when he does it? Yeah, allusions to Beric, yep. And and it's like... Beric and Thoros. These things Mm -hmm. are named the same, but they seem pretty different. (laughs) Wait, I... Know that, but but again, <clears throat> you know anybody that that uh, can do CPR will tell you you don't save everybody with CPR. Yeah. So it does yep. feel, you know, I don't want to be too magical about it. I'm pulling on, <laughs> you know, I'm pulling on George's magic threads and trying to get him to expose more, but it feels like there's something to this guy. Again, there's something it, it, legitimate. Yeah, because he he brings up the fact that. There are some priests that aren't able to resuscitate everybody right. or able to bring them back with the kiss of life, but Aaron's never lost a guy. Never. So either he's super good at CPR. Even when he was learning. Yeah. Like, that's that's a that's a talent. That's more talent than a long it, beard. He, I think he's an X-Man, man. He's got, he's got the super kidneys. <laughs> piss like a sword that he could fight with. That's his weapon. That's his X-Men weapon. Yeah. Is his his wiener. And he like <laughs> he ignites it like a sword and he fights with his it's yeah. His pee can cut through Steve. Uh, uh, maybe he's more like Samson and if you uh cut his hair he loses all his power. That is yeah, yeah. If he ever cuts his hair, uh don't be surprised. If he pees like a mortal. If he uh, starts peeing like the rest of us, gets a few kidney stones. <laughs> peeing like a mortal. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I figure it's time to do a Sock and Seuss Mapas uh, for two reasons. One, yeah. uh, Afuk has uh, a whole new uh, couple maps uh, that are available to you that the other books don't provide. I mean, I'm sure you're going online and finding these maps anyway. But uh, you get a look at the uh, the Iron Islands. Oh, I guess it's just one mm-hmm. map in Afric, and I think then there's one more in uh, Dance with Dragons. Anyway, um, so Sakansus Mapas for Old Wick and Great Wick. Uh, the the majority of this chapter, actually all of it, takes place on Great Wick, um, which is uh, the kind of the furthest left, the furthest west of the Iron mm-hmm. Islands, and it's also the biggest one there. Uh, they mention Oldwick, which is where this King's Moot will take place. It's the tiny one that's kind of right in its in the chompers of Great Wick, right next to it. And then you've also heard of Pike, which is kind of to the southeast of it. That's where the Seastone Chair is and where, um, where, where the Greyjoys reside. Yeah. Right. And then just one more real quick. They mention, uh, they mention uh, Ten Towers, where Asha has called uh, for... 
people to uh, to come. So that's uh, directly, it's kind of like the furthest east island of the Iron Islands. So just uh, a sock and tooth mop us in general for the Iron Islands. Um, we don't hear much about mm-hmm. Black Tide and Orkmont at this point, um, or Salt Cliff. And then there's also, I think there's there's some Iron Islands way, way off, way yeah. to the west. There's one clear out there. Yeah, yep. beyond the Sunset Sea or whatever, but we won't talk too much about that one. So, yeah, sock and tooth mop us for Iron Islands. Have fun with that one, guys. A whole new world. Yeah, a whole, whole new world. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have too much more to talk about. We talked about the religion side. I liked the allusions to Christian baptisms. Uh, much more severe, obviously. There's even the conflict that exists in Christian religion over the method of baptism, whether it's yes full immersion in the water <laughs> or hilarious. you know like a, a sprinkling. And <laughs> Kerm throws it in there. I don't know if he's trolling Christianity or what, but I liked it. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of fun to see. It was it's actually so growing up, I was not always the uh heathen atheist that I am. Uh growing up right, we yeah. we were mostly Presbyterian, but we tried a few churches as we were in between. Didn't didn't like uh one of the ones we'd been going to and you know, I, I don't think my Hopefully never, they never listen. I don't think my parents were the most uh, educated on the differences between the different uh, Christian religions. So they just started trying some of them, and uh, we went to a Baptist church, and the the deal breaker was full immersion. My mom's like, nope! <laughs> we're out! Never went oh, back. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, the hinge thing that he mentions a few times. Do you want to talk about that or maybe wait on it? Rusted hinges, yeah. yeah. That's where I, I mentioned that Aaron seems to regard Euron with more than just like dislike or something. There seems to be something that goes back a long ways that's instilled in him this, oh, this sense of just like fear almost or intense yeah. hatred, something. Yeah. But true, true. Uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a fear there for sure, and I don't know that we're given enough hints here to know what that is. Um, theories abound, and if you want to go check it out, you can. Um, but I don't, I don't think we'll probably cover it here in this section. Um, right. Okay, uh, let's move on to the Captain of the Guards, which my notes have your name next to, but I prepared for it. You were planning on me doing it, right? You. Good. Yes, okay. I'm planning on you doing it. <laughs> Good, all right. Phew. For some reason, I have your name next to it, even though I knew that was not the case. All right. So, Captain of the Guards. Oh, to there's no getting by you. You're loyal, brave, you're strong, you're true, and as captain of the guards, you keep that blade sharp. They serve, obey, protect. They say since you were six, yeah, and it's you they won't forget as you stand beside your prince. Prince Doran sits in his rickety wheelchair, too much in pain to move, as his personal guard, Ario Hota, watches over him. The children splash in the pools known as the Water Gardens, a national treasure of the upper-class families of Doran. The blood oranges that line the Water Gardens are well past ripe, and so is the time for action, according to Obara Sand, the first of three bastard daughters of the slain Oberyn Martell that we get to meet in this chapter. Wait a minute. Doran, Ario, Obara. Who are these a-holes? More oh, new characters? We're three books in, George! George. God damn it! Where's Danny? Where's Tyrion? So, get ready, first-time readers, because with a feast for mm. crows uh, and a dance with dragons, too, a little bit, 
come several new parallel plot lines that we've got to uh, to digest. And it's a wiki of ice and fire. Yeah, use it. Use it for Refer sure. Refer to it. Uh, but you know what? It's a it's a pleasure to to, to digest them. They're uh, it, it's a little bit unnerving the first time you read, or it was for me. Uh, but yep. enjoy them. They're they're good plot lines. So this is a long chapter, uh, and kind of again, kind of like the the prologues. It's it's very much about introducing a whole new culture and a whole new kind of set of people. So I'm going to cover it a little bit different than a normal chapter summary. I'm going to focus on the characters, their goals, and the political climate in Dorne a little bit, and then just go quickly through the action. So first, the political climate. The news of Oberyn Martell, the Red Viper's brutal death at the hands of the mountain, and already a, vi- a villainous creature in recent Dornish history, as, as he's known as the murderer of Elia Martell. The news has reached Dorne, and they are sad, they're angry, vengeful. They are, as a kingdom, covering all the steps of grief that you can think of. They look to their prince for action, but he sits and stews in his wheelchair on what the best course of action is. The Sand Snakes, uh, Oberyn Martell's daughters, bastard daughters, grow impatient, and so does the kingdom in general. So, now some characters. Uh, Ario, our POV, is an aged, scarred, badass protector from Norvos across the Narrow Sea. Uh, it's kind of near where Illyrio is from, Pentos. Um, anyway, he was given over to priests at a young age. He carries a seven-foot-tall axe with a wicked edge and appears to be completely loyal to his prince. Prince Doran, the ruler of Dorne and Oberyn's older, careful, considered brother. He is in constant pain from gout. He rides in a wheelchair and a litter whenever he must go anywhere, and uh, he's very slow to act and slow to move. Obara Sand. Cold, hard, and strong, Obari carries a whip, spear, and shield with her. She is hot-headed and fierce, and she wants Doran to declare war immediately. Though her plan seems to lack any chance of success, she wants to basically sack Old Town. I don't know why, really. It doesn't seem to have much to do with anything. Uh, Maester Kaleot. So, he's old, he's been with the Martells forever, even longer than Ario has. He's short and bald. He's got a sharp wit, um, but... uh, yeah, not, not very physically imposing. Lady Nim, uh, another of the Sand Snakes. 25 and skinny. She's got pale skin, long dark hair and dark eyes. She's clad in robes and capes that did nothing to hide her gracefulness. She wants a more secret attack. She wants Doran to consider a more secret attack. To claim Jamie and Circe, Tywin and Tommen, the Quadfecta. Uh, she carries knives well hidden. Uh, but wants to uh, to do a more of like an assassination apparently than a than an all out war to claim just those four lives. Princess Arianne. So this is Doran's daughter. Long black hair braided in ringlets, short and curvy. She takes after her mother. We don't know much yet about Arianne, but she seems to have an air of authority about her, and she's very much beloved by Ario. Tyene. So the third sand snake that we get to meet. She's innocent looking, golden headed, and blue eyed. She's the daughter of a Septa uh, and, and Oberyn. Uh, Tyene prefers war as well, but she wants to draw the Lannisters to Dorne by crowning Marcilla queen and marrying her to Tristan. Uh, that would be Arianne's younger brother. She thinks that marrying them to Tristan and calling Marcilla queen would draw the Lannisters to Dorne where they can attack uh, you know, from a position of strength. Um, Dorne has their own law about inheritance, uh, they believe in, uh, oh geez, I'm going to screw up the term. Um, girls and boys are equal, 
I'll make it <laughs> elementary. Yep. <laughs> uh, the firstborn child gets it, whether it's a girl or a boy. Not not only boys can inherit. So, um, in what Dorne, a novel concept! What a novel concept! Love it. So, um, in their in their land, uh, clown, crowning Marcella queen would be the right thing to do. She is elder than Tommen, and she should be the queen. And she's in Dorne, so hey, she's queen. So anyway, to 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 briefly cover the cover the action with all these characters. Basically, what happens in this chapter is. Uh, Ario and Prince Doran are at the water gardens watching the children play in the pools. Obara arrives and demands action. Uh, they send her ahead to Sunspear and basically determine, you know what? Sunspear is going to be a wreck. The people are maybe even rioting. We better go there. So Doran gets in his litter. They head over to Sunspear. On the way, Nim, uh, the second sand snake, interrupts them and gets sent on to Sunspear herself. Uh, they get to Sunspear themselves and find that it is, you know, there is some unrest. There's people about to pelt them with fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't seem happy. They want action. They keep, you know, calling for revenge and to spears, to spears, which sounds like a great Dornish chant. Um, as spears are their preferred weapon. Uh, they get inside. Ariane's there, uh, telling them they've got a feast ready. Uh, they go up to the, uh, to the throne room, though, because Tyene wants to talk to him. So she talks to them and introduces herself to us. And then at the end of the chapter, after Tyene has left, Doran asks Ario to get some loyal men and have the Sand Snakes arrested. He doesn't want any of them taking matters into their own hands, and he wants them under lock and key so that they're under his control. He hopes that this will maybe let their heads cool, and also hopes that word will reach... Uh, King's Landing, so that Tywin knows that he has a friend in Doran. Mm-hmm. And in Doran. Mm. Couldn't he have picked a different name than Doran in Dorn? Dorn. Jeez. Doran, 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 Doran. Anyway, how was that chapter summary? Was it okay? And it was a little bit awkward, but it would have been a really weird no, chapter dandy. to do chronologically. All right. It's a weird chapter. It is. Um... I, I do like, though, that it comes from a POV that's not Doran because yeah. we we don't know what's up with the guy. Yeah. On the surface, he seems scared. He seems yeah. reluctant. He seems like a hand wringer who yeah. can't make up his mind and resorts to these rash decisions to to aid his procrastination in terms of like locking up the sand snakes. But you just don't know, right? Yeah, he's, um, without giving away too much, um, yeah, he's one of my favorite characters. Uh, all, all the things he has to deal with and the personalities he has to contend with and how he does mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, just suffice to say there's more to Doran maybe than meets the eye. Um, yeah. And, and I don't think everyone feels that way about him either. Uh, that's just my opinion. But um, anyway, yeah, it, it's it's kind of a, it is, it's kind of a weird chapter. Really what you... I feel like really what you get is an introduction to these sand snakes and the feeling in Dorne. Mm -hmm. And really that's the whole point yep. of the chapter. Um, you know, and and maybe a brief introduction with to Doran and kind of to get a sense of him. But yeah, not not a whole lot going on. Um, I like what Doran said. There's a difference between fear and action. Um, you know, all the sand snakes are kind of trying to prompt him to do something immediately. They are enraged. Um you know, he Doran keeps kind of pointing out, and he's not wrong. You know, Oberyn joined into a trial by combat. 
he was killed lawfully in combat, mm-hmm. not in a rage or, you know, in any unfair way. In fact, I mean, they don't, I think two of the Sand Snakes allude to the fact that he had probably poison on his blade. If anyone was cheating, it was it was Oberyn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you could argue, I guess, that having the mountain in any fight is, is cheating, but, uh, you know, he's the one that poisoned his blade and cheated. The mountain played by the rules and beat him. Um, so, you know, I, I understand they're sad and upset, but, you know, to look at it from Doran's perspective, what's he to do? He, right. of his own volition, jumped into a hornet's nest and was killed. It's... Mm-hmm. What can you do about that? And unlike some uh, some leaders, we're comparing. I'm doing a lot of comparisons to other. I did it with Aaron, and now I'm doing it with Doran. Doran seems to honestly care about the people that he rules over, right? And a reason for his reluctance is not wanting to commit forces uh, in a way that that will kill that will lead to needless deaths. Um, like Ober and Oberyn's death underscores that philosophy. Yeah, and uh, and, and I can see why he's one of your favorite characters. To me, it, I, I don't see him as the hand wringing type. I might have my first time reading. Now I see him as kind of this guy who's like, "Will you will you wait just a minute?" Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, it's a terrible story. I, I had this. Uh, so one of my best friends, uh, when he was a, like a teenager, he came home. Uh, it was late one night. And he didn't know where his parents were, and he was like calling out for them. He's like, "Dad, Dad!" Because he knew they were home. The cars were in the driveway and everything. And finally, here's his dad just yell, "Would you wait just a minute?" From the bedroom where the <laughs> uh, door was shut. <laughs> uh, wonder what was going on there. <laughs> when he told us that story, that that "Would you wait just a minute?" has stuck with me my whole life, <laughs> and I kept thinking that with. That's what's going through Doran's head right now is the Sand Snakes are like, go, go, go. And him, well, you wait just a minute. Yeah. The, so. This chapter, the, a theme a theme in this chapter for sure is pacing and speed and, mm-hmm. t- and time and how it moves and how you deal with how it moves. And uh, I don't know if we talk about it now or later, but the, the, uh, the oranges are yep. – are for sure an element in the... They're, they're almost a character themselves. I considered giving them a character description um, because they clearly mark something in this story of the passage of time. Um, you know, the, the Dorn is... Yeah, and, 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 and once the time is passed, once the ripeness is passed and they fall and they splatter, there's no getting them back, right? Right. You're right. It adds a sense of urgency to the whole chapter of, you know... You can delay all you want, Doran, but time is going to run out eventually, and you're going to have to act. Yeah, uh, there's so many ways to look at this. Yeah, I'm sure everybody's been there before, where where you're mm-hmm. you're just reading a book, or you're just watching something on TV, or you're just you're doing something, and you don't want to think about the fact that time is going. But there, something happens. Mm-hmm. You know, an alarm goes off, or you, know, you got an alarm clock that dings every 15 minutes, or something. Something pulls you out of it and reminds you. That hey, time's ticking, buddy. I know you're enjoying this, but there's a world happening out there, and another orange just fell, mm-hmm. and it was an opportunity you missed. You know, um, it's a it's it's an interesting way George has weaved that in. Right. Uh, what do you think of Ario? What do you think of Ario himself? 
He's interesting. Is he? Uh, he kind of he kind of just seems like muscle. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed about him, maybe this is just a small thing, and and I don't even know if it'll come into play later. He's very in touch with his senses and things like that. He he comments about the juice on his fingers and how uh, the stickiness of it. He, he vividly remembers the sounds of the bells from his native Norvos. Uh, so drink. he seems like a person. Yeah, he's very in touch with his senses, and he recalls those things very quickly and easily. Um, and I also love how devoted he is to to the Martells. You know, besides just protecting Doran, he's almost kind of his caretaker, right? He yeah. puts him to bed at night, and yeah, he he's, seems... a, he's got these feelings of fatherly affection for for Ariane. Um, he seems almost tender, but unable to express himself, right. maybe, but tender. He's this gentle giant type guy yeah. who also is apparently very dangerous when he needs to be, uh, which has an interesting element. of wood. Oh, yeah. On top. Yep. Many, many, many jokes. There's so, so many things we could say right now. Smooth, polished uh, ash. Polishes it every night. Yeah. Right? Right. Before he goes to bed. But he doesn't polish the whole, just the, Tip. He kind of sharp. He just sharp. <laughs> just the tip. Just the tip. Just the tip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't shake hands, Ria Hota. But yeah, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy you just want to hang out with, right? Yeah. I, I mean, he just kind of seems. Yeah. Again, not life of the party kind of stuff, but. You know, yeah, I guess he's maybe I'm not giving you enough credit. He's he seems considered, he's thoughtful, um, he's caring. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, maybe my bar is too high, but uh, also I mean, I, very I, dangerous. He, he, true. He also does he does seem to read people really well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he seems mm-hmm. to understand who they are, and I guess he could be wrong. We're trusting his POV, but he seems pretty sure of himself. Um, mm-hmm. All right, you have uh, you have anything else uh, for this? Oh, I've, I had one more thing. Um, mm. you know, it's, it's weird that Dorn has been skipped this whole time. Uh, you get very limited interactions with any of the characters other than when Oberyn comes north and when Tyrion Oberyn. is dealing yeah. with them to send Marcella south. But that whole time when, when that whole Marcella thing, and remember Tyrion used that whole thing in, I think it was a clash of Kings. Uh, he used yep. the whole betrothal of Marcella to try to flush out who was kind of telling on him to Cersei. Um, mm-hmm. and, but in the end, there was a price to him learning that information. It was giving Marcella to the Dornish. And now it looks like it's maybe really going to return and bite Tyrion in the ass here. Yeah. Or all of, all of the Lannisters. Um, mm-hmm. So, interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Anything you want to bring up about the Sand Snakes? We really haven't talked about them too much. Uh, they seem interesting. Uh, Obara seems dense. She's by far my least favorite one. I mean, sacking Old Town? Right. What is that going to accomplish? <laughs> Look. It's just like I want to kill something. There's not a single Lannister in something. Old Town. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> what are you going to accomplish doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Obara doesn't do much for me. Uh, I think I like Tyene the best. She seems the most thoughtful in her plans. Tyene's my my girl, man. Oh. She seems the most thoughtful in her plans. Seems to have the most cohesion. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we don't know much about them yet. Uh, it's you know they all passionately loved their father it almost says more about Oberyn than them 
um, you know, he kind of sought them all out to bring them to bring them in and taught them all to be warriors and uh, to have this confidence and swagger about them. Um, yeah, I was going to say it says a lot about uh, Oberyn as a as just a father. Yeah, that you want your children to succeed and 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 believe in themselves and accomplish things and and he he did that and he you know not all of them just like it's not like all of them are like Obar and just kill things. Each of them has their own talents and stuff, and it's almost like he helped them maybe find what they were interested in or what they tended to, and then he you know, help them develop that, which as a father, that's what you try to do, right? Yeah. Tyene with poisoning, uh, we find out Nymeria is quite stealthy with daggers hidden all over her body. Um, yeah, the, 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 the poisoning thing was a little subtle. I don't know if anyone missed it. Um, they all rush up to Doran's hands after she leaves <laughs> after he touches to her look head. for yeah. like a scratch, in, indicating that, that basically Tyene is adept at poisoning somehow. That's, yeah. that's what we're supposed to get out of that. But you can, if you blink, you can miss it pretty quickly. Um, anyway, okay. Um, all right, anything else? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. We got a lot to talk about. We do out. have some stuff in so. Thomas After Dark, and we're well over time. I've done, as usual, a terrible job marshalling the time. So, yeah. uh, everyone, uh, thanks for joining us. It's time to enter the enter the area where we will spoil the crap out of everything. Uh, if you don't want to be spoiled for future books, like you're reading along at our pace, uh, just jump off right now and stop listening, and uh, we'll see you in three weeks, uh, where we'll cover more uh, combination of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Uh, if you want that list, uh, you can see the order of the chapters at afeastwithdragons.com. That's correct, right, Matt? Yep. We're using their order, right? So afeastwithdragons.com. You can see the order there. You can also mm-hmm. see it. We've put it on our uh, on our davosfingers.com website as well, so you can see it there. Uh, so check it out, and you can find out which chapters we're reading there. Uh, and now it is time for the Davos After the Dark. Davos After Dark. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we do have uh, some stuff to talk about. Uh, should we just dive into the John stuff? Some John stuff. Oh boy, yeah. Let's do it, man. Where do you uh, want to you start? Want to go with, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah, maybe just to get it out of the way because I really don't have much to say about it. Uh, what we're referring to, listeners, is uh, Melisandre saying to Jon, "You know nothing, Jon Snow." And how did she know to say that to him? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I refuse my... to believe it's coincidence. Yeah, I, I kind of blew it with my chapter summary. I should have probably ended with that. Um, but I like no, the daggers in the dark bit. But yeah, at the end of the chapter, she basically says verbatim, you know nothing, Jon Snow. And she doesn't have the, right. you know, the probably the same cadence and accent or whatever, so we don't get any reaction from Jon, maybe, but yeah, she says the exact phrase to Jon, and it's just, to me, you know, how does she know how to use that phrase? What You know, it's just another subtle thing to remind us, hey, by the way, they have power and they know what they're doing. Maybe you should be on their mm-hmm. team. But well, and Melisandre no at this way, point she's is... creeping out of like her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and she's been wrong before. She so has. we're kind of like, so we're kind of like, oh, Melisandre's not all that great. Here we're reminded that okay, she gets it right. Yeah. and you know another very poignant one that we haven't gotten to yet is she calls John's death uh, very vividly. 
Yes, um, she does. Daggers in the Dark. And, uh, you know, it, it it could be just a literary device. People do use that phrase. Um, but I, mm-hmm. uh, I, it seems like a stretch. It feels to me like he's trying yeah. to tell us something. Just as, a, you know, a little subtle yeah. reminder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, Melisandre is Egret. That's what it is. Yes, that's the theory. That's that's the new theory you heard it here at Davos Fingers first. Matt will write that up here in a in a week or two and we'll publish it. They do both have red hair. Uh, yeah, I get to figure out how she got from north of the wall clear down to Dragonstone and those places where Stannis was. Just uh, ask Dan and Dave. And I'm sure they can explain it to you. Sure. <laughs> that was a show jib. Jibe. Jibe. Oh, oh, jab. Jab, that. <clears throat> but yeah, I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's right. cool, though. Uh, okay, well, the other one that I had... Uh, the other one that I had highlighted from this chapter is... Um, they talk about... Uh, you know, Stannis goes on and on in his, his prattling about... <laughs> how none of these people will will come to join him. And, you know, he had a sense of that before. He did offer John the position uh, of, of head Stark in Winterfell, which John declined mm-hmm. in the last book. Um, so he has a, he had a sense that, that this was the case already, but he's seeing it now. The proof is, is being thrust in front of him by 10-year-old girls <laughs> writing letters to him. Um, what have the Starks done that's inspired such loyalty in the people of the North? And I'll ask you. I have some answers myself. Uh, yeah, because we get the the later in Dance with Dragons, we get the Littles who, you know, they're willing to risk it all for the Ned's girl. I love how they call him the Ned. The Ned, yeah. Yeah, you could start calling me the Matt. The Matt. I'd be, yeah. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> uh, you know, the popular thing it seems like in the fandom, I could be wrong, is to hate on Eddard a little bit or kind of bash him a little bit. I don't know if you hate on him. But they bring up how, oh, Eddard tried to play the Game of Thrones and he failed and he messed up. Um, it wasn't as cool as everyone thought he was because he, you know, he lost his head in the end. Uh, but you see that he obviously was able to build these long-term relationships of loyalty that are paying off even after his death. And you don't see that kind of loyalty for the Lannisters or these other apparently uh, successful houses but you see these guys that even after Eddard's death are willing to follow his children and sacrifice themselves um, in in the name of their cause and so you know you get little glimpses of things Eddard did do uh, as as king in the north well not as king in the north but as a Stark in Winterfell Um, but you see that he obviously built these kind of relationships um to last and did a good job at it so kudos to him he he played the game well yeah at least in his own land yeah Uh, what were your thoughts well yeah there's a few things i'll just add to this and i I cheated a little bit because i i guessed it on uh hypes watch hypes watch if you guys don't know about that you can find them on youtube um i guessed it on episode for them where we talked about brand two of storm of swords um Mm -hmm. and we talked about this quite a bit, and one of the things that you do uh, that I did when I was preparing for that is I looked at the family tree for the Starks. And one thing that I think the Stark family, not just Eddard, but the Starks in general over you know the last hundreds of years have done is they've married 
in and around virtually every family in the North. They've made it a yeah. family affair. If you, it's it's a who's who of Northern names. If you go look at the family tree in the World Book, it's 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 every everybody's in there except the Boltons. Like you can't find Bolton like right. anywhere. It's pretty funny. How Even down excluded. to the to the. Seemingly insignificant mountain clan. Yeah, the hill clans are in there. Right? Yeah, the hill, hill clan. Even Eddard's as mother was. As, yeah, mm-hmm. Edard's mother yeah. was a flint. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that that's one thing they do is is they take very seriously this intermarrying concept of 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 you know getting everyone involved and engaged. It's a lot harder to go to war against your cousin than it is to go to war against your lord, right? Mm-hmm. And another another thing that I'll say is. You know, I think Eddard, Eddard made a point of, of visiting them in their places, even in the vast region of the north. He made sure to go there. They didn't always have to come to him, which I think means a lot to these people, especially people like the Hill Clans. And then lastly, they're kind of just helped by region. You know, a lot of these other lords, uh, you know, the Lannisters and stuff, they're they're dealing with wide open spaces. Maybe the Aarons not so mm-hmm. much, but they're dealing with wide open spaces. Where there's a lot of competition and con, you know, contest for land and and loyalty and things like that. Whereas the North is full of land, it's cold as fuck, so nobody wants to go there. And so they kind of have that going for them. They have a geographical advantage of, this is our place, and strangers don't come here, and we're proud of it being our place. It's different than everywhere else. And, like, you know, that unity kind of helps bind them, I think. Fosters unity. Yeah, 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 a little bit. So it's it's not just Ned, um, but... all, all the Starks, but but also they get, a, I think, a mm-hmm. geographical advantage as well. All good points. Yeah. Yep. Uh, should we move on? How about uh, you want to you want to talk about this this blood oranges thing, or do you think we hit that enough? Uh, boy. Well, let's just talk about Dorn in general. Yeah. Okay, Dorn in general. This we can whole, go to the other one, arc. maybe, and that maybe that'll sprout. Maybe that'll sprout from from. Other well, I think things. the blood oranges what is, is like... a part of all of this right in in a couple okay. different ways i think that the blood orange read into it deeper than me maybe the, go ahead it, it's the metaphor of it you know of, of the passage of time that we've we talked about previously but uh i think there's a symbolism in that that blood hitting the ground and, and you get instances where the blood orange falls and it explodes and it's gone and it says that doran winced you know almost like it hurt him when it's, a lo- it, it's a lost opportunity. It's a lost opportunity, but it also could be a loss of people. And it, it goes to highlight Doran's reticence to needlessly send his people in to be killed and how that matters to him. Losing people matters to him. Um, and and that plays a lot into his decisions, right? It's why he likes yeah, it's, I, it's why he likes sitting at the water gardens and watching the innocent children at play I think it's because it reminds him of 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 the cost of going to war the potential costs and it's not something that you just run blindly into he says later on or is it is it in this chapter and I'm just forgetting or is it later on when he's talking to all the sand snakes where he says I only play such games as I can win I think it's I think it's later that he says it I think that's later I think it's later but we're but, in Davos after dark time, so it's yep. all fair. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, 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 I'm running. I'm running close to you, parallel to you. Um, I, I tend to think of. I tend to think of the oranges themselves as opportunities. Mm-hmm. As uh, because what you want to do is pick oranges before they fall. 
because then you can enjoy them. We, uh, uh, Ario has the moment where he's thinking about the, you mentioned the juice on his fingers and yep. how sweet it is, uh, the taste and everything. Those fruits can be enjoyed by everyone if they're picked at the right moment. Yep. But if you wait too long, it's a lost opportunity and it's a missed chance at doing the right thing. And to me, that's why he winces because it reminds him of the passage of time that those opportunities, they could be falling all around him and he doesn't know it, mm -hmm. right? He's uncertain. He thinks he thinks he's doing the right thing by waiting and he wants to and he's trying to be careful. But, the, but when those fall, it's a constant reminder of like, ah, there goes that one. Events are happening around me. There goes that one. Yeah, it, Things are happening, and I'm not taking action. Is that right? You know, I've still got a lot of oranges on the trees. Am I waiting correctly, or am I missing out? Right? Mm -hmm. And it's to me that's that's part of the metaphor they're they're going. Oh, with it too. could be. It could be many layered in that metaphor. I like it. Yeah. Because uh, right. we know. But he's got a couple balls in the air already. So just to review kind of where Doran's at. Yeah. Uh, first plan was to betroth <laughs> Ariane and Viserys that we'll find out later. Um, that does not go well. The Golden Crown ruined that. Uh, so his next idea is to send Doran, or, uh, Quentin, his son, after Daenerys to marry her, bring the dragons back. Again, Doran says, I only play such games as i can win he knows he cannot win in the manpower department if he goes north and and takes on westeros in particular the lannisters right. and the tyrells he's not going to win uh and people are going to die which he wants to avoid needless uh needless dying again i only play such games as i can win the dragons are his advantage it's not so much getting Daenerys. It's it, it, although she comes along with the package, but to him it seems like it's more. If I can get these three dragons, then we've got a fight and chance, right? Um, yes. We know that that has also failed. However, to this point in the story, Doran does not know, and uh, no, he doesn't. You've got to think that that's going to be crushing to the poor guy. Not only that, you know, another plan bites the dust. But along with it, his but I son. but I I think back to the oranges though. That is that's part of the reason he's waiting. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, it totally is. It's one hundred percent the reason he's, he's waiting. He's buying. He, he's time. like just just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. Will you wait a minute? Exactly. Will you wait just a minute? He's like, I've got something. I'm doing something. But uh, he, he can't tell the sand snakes that, that they're way too impulsive and everything. Right. He needs to play his cards right. close to his chest, and so. Well, Think of it's like okay, I just gotta lock him up for just a little bit, and please, Quentin, get back soon. <laughs> and and there's more and there's more Dornish stuff going on mm -hmm. later, yep. right? With the Sand Snakes sending, uh, I believe it is Tyene to be a Septa. There is that right? Yep, she's gonna she her job um, is to infiltrate the 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 religious the side Septa. of things and get close to the High right. Septon. And learn things there for uh, if it's just fact finding or spying or if there's a specific purpose we're not completely privy to that yet. And yep. then Nimeria, right? Nim is is sitting on the on the on the council, right? Yep. They've offered a seat and she's taking it, I think. So she'll be involved on the political side. Dangerous, mm. um, you know. But 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 she's there. Uh, you know, they have Marcilla as as insurance, and and again to highlight Oberyn's death was not an act of like extreme wrongdoing you know they didn't want him to jump in the pit um and he chose to uh 
you know, not no physical pit. You know what I mean? Um, you know, there, there's also, we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, Alaris is likely Sorella, another sand snake. <laughs> yeah, let's go there um, too. Yeah. And, um, and it's possible, it's a stretch, based on based on the path she seems to be on but it's possible that she's trying to infiltrate the maester angle yep. of you know maybe somehow getting sent to king's landing and being involved in that way i don't know but that seems like it would be a blind luck but um you know maybe that's a possibility um and then in addition to that they besides the sand snakes i don't remember what obar is doing do you remember obar is just off <laughs> Killing things, stuff. <laughs> yeah. She's she's trying to do a one one woman sacking of Old Town. Um, so, but but there's also then this this other plot. Uh, I think we're even into Winds of Winter stuff we now, yep. maybe uh, with Ariane. Uh, or you say Ariani, Ariani. I've changed. I've I've, anyway. I've conditioned myself to saying Ariane. I'm going to say Ariane. Okay. Yep. Okay. We have Ariane meeting Aegon. Um, and then, uh, so, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on there, but, you know, I suppose you can guess. And then lastly, we still do have Tristan, uh, who is an heir to do something with. So yep. I guess... Uh, there's the Marcella uh, you know, tristans he's... hopeful connection, right? Right. Or, or, yeah, maybe that's an ace in the hole, or maybe he's going to do so. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I've spent a long time, you know, we've spent a long time kind of laying all these pieces out, but... Doran's doing stuff. Oh yeah, he is not sitting there he's watching the just fall. Yep. Yeah, he's doing shit, and you know who knows whether his, his stuff will play out. But he knows he needs allies, and he's trying really hard to make something happen. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have Do you have a pet Dornish theory? Well, of what you think is going to happen. To worry someone, um, I like Doran a lot too. I know you like him probably more than I do. I, I sometimes worry. About his execution of his plans, though, uh, we talked about worry, a little bit risky to send Nemeria into the heart of King's Landing to be on the small council. I'm not so much worried about Nim's safety. I'm more worried about her going full Oberyn and doing something that's going to wreck things for for Doran. Um, you send Quentin to Danny, and bless his heart, but Quentin's just not prepared to deal with someone like Danny. And, you know... You, like he overestimates his pieces? A little bit. Uh, he's just like, you got to do this, Quentin. Or and misjudges them. And it's like, when we when he gets there, you see how woefully unprepared Quentin is to deal with someone like Danny. And maybe Doran didn't know that, right? He didn't know, you know, the situation Danny had put herself in in Marine and everything else that was going on politically there. So it's not completely Doran's fault. But He also doesn't really know anything about Danny, Right. So Maybe she's a meek, mousy girl. He doesn't know, right? But yeah, it's a, mother of dragons. And I assume that would be... To impress her, you'd want to send over all these ships and you want to show a sense of power, which he really can't do. So because he needs to kind of keep this quiet... But sending Quentin with just five of his friends, inexperienced in these types of things, on this little as they sort of see it an adventure, um, just didn't work. And then lastly, and this is what I'm getting to, uh, you talked about Ariane is, and and my worry is he sends Ariane to investigate this whole Aegon thing, right? And 
he tells her if if we need to go to war you just say the word right i don't remember the exact of what it is but he's like you just send word so he's putting all his trust in arianne that if she sends word they're gonna act right yeah and yeah I think he trusts Arianne. Maybe he shouldn't. Uh, maybe that's the argument you're making. But I think he trusts her more than, say, the Sand Snakes. She, they had a misunderstanding, right? Um, oh, Arianne screwed around. up hugely. She did screw up, but after Marcella she screwed thing. up, I can't. Uh, right, but after after she screwed up with the Marcella thing, they had a sit down yeah. together, and I don't remember all the details. Yep. But essentially, he came clean about all of his plans mm-hmm. and stuff, and they kind of they seemed to come to an understanding at the end of that about how they needed to proceed forward. And she understood his caution and what his long game was a little bit better. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like they're more joined at the hip than they were. And I think he, I think he trusts her now. I think he does to too, make that call. but her, her POV gives it away. And the winds of winter that she's not fully on board with this Quentin thing. She's oh. still bugged by, by Quentin. I don't remember that. It, it's not immediately apparent. She keeps trying to convince herself. I love my brother. I don't want my brother to die. I don't want anything to happen to him. But she's like, but ah, this isn't fair at the same time. She's she's going back and forth. Okay, my worry is that uh, Doran wants the dragons. He wants Danny. Ariane meets up with Aegon, let's say, and she likes this idea, uh, joining up with him, marrying him, because that put her in a good position if she's married to this guy that's taking over Westeros, right? Danny comes back to Westeros, where Aegon is, and we get Dance with the Dragons, the Dance of the Dragons round two. Aegon versus Danny. All of a sudden, you've got Danny against the Martells because Arianne hooks up with Aegon. Yeah. What Oops. if what if the opposite happens? What if Doran somehow Quentin failed, mm-hmm. but Tristan succeeds. That she finally she finally realizes her her adventures in Marine have taught her that you know what I don't need Dario I need Quentin mm-hmm. right I needed the Dornish spears I need to stop being a girl that falls in love and instead be someone that you know thinks about her kingdom and Tristan is only like two or three years younger than Danny is he's thirteen um, Tristan could be for Danny and Arianne could be for Aegon, and now you have Danny, Aegon, and Dorn all together. Ooh. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? I worry about Aegon and Danny getting along. I know, but yeah, this comes to my weak spot for Aegon. Mm-hmm. But, and Danny to some extent. I, I feel I feel like both of them want family. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, they, they, they'd just be if they could just get in a room together, they could figure it out and be like, you know what? Let's marry each other and, <laughs> yeah. and rule together. They've kind of been know? conditioned by these outside influences and everything to believe yes. that they're these rightful rulers. And so they're banking on that. Yeah. But I agree with you. If they just think outside the box a little bit, sit down together, yeah. they go, wait, we can make this work without killing each other. <clears throat> yeah. I That's not really my headcanon, mm-hmm. but it, it's kind of... It's kind of an interesting place that my head went when I was thinking about all these different threats that Dorne has right. going. What's your head cannon then for Dorne? So I think it's not going to. I, end I well. think it's. I I, I think I, I think I agree with you. I mean I I don't know. We've done head cannon so many times. I feel like I change it every time. But That's fine. I think they're going to end up hitching their stars to one of them, and either one's going to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in the end, though, I'm not. I'm not even sure it's going to be about the Iron Throne. It's right. Yeah, I, we've I talked know. about that too. The Iron Throne may not even matter yeah. in the end. Probably. I mean, ironically, what what might be the best thing for Dorne is for Arianne to realize that what's best for Dorne is just being in Dorne yep. and not being part of the Seven Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And let's let Doran die, and I'll be in charge, and we're just going to retreat and be Dorne. Right. And not be a part of any of this crap. <laughs> you know, like, maybe she sees that Aegon is fake or something, and, and doesn't doesn't feel good about him, and is like, you know what? Fuck this noise. I'm going back home. Let's just stay where we are. Let's mm-hmm. be Dornish. That might be the best thing for everybody, if you think about it, but... Yeah, for everybody in all of the Seven Kingdoms, it's just go home to and just, do you. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, do you do you. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what they should have done is Doran should have sent Arianne to Danny. <laughs> uh, is that like little like schoolboy scad, like giggling <laughs> the possibility of? I'm just saying. Or something? We we know uh, that uh, that Danny is is open to that, that kind of stuff. Well, she's open, but she's poo pooed it. She's yeah. kind of said, no, that's not that's not how we roll right. here. Arianne's um, really hot though. Uh, she made both of our lists, I think, for sexiest character, didn't she? Or what, what was that, uh, that list we had? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, all right, we're we're getting late, man. It's a special sized episode for you guys since we've been gone for so <laughs> this long. This is that new, Yay. new normal thing where we don't have Brooke to rein us in, so we just go crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, we'll be on here for three hours. Uh, uh, do you want to do one right, more? Let, let's let's do one more. Okay. Uh, do you want? Do you want? Alaris Sorella's game that she's playing? Do you want Macers versus Faceless Men in Old Town? Do you want brand skin changing stuff? Uh, I feel um, like we could probably do brand skin changing Theon? stuff later. Yeah, um, and we could do certainly do Where's Theon later. Yeah, um, the Sorella stuff is really quick for me because we just we don't know what she's doing. It sounds like Doran doesn't know what she's doing either. Maybe he yeah. does, but he kind of just. It, it sounds dismissive. Like, to yeah, me. dismissive. That's a good way to put it. Like she's it's off like, playing. You know, her we don't need to put any eggs in that yeah, basket. Don't worry about it, her. It would be. It would. It'd be pretty ironic if all the planning that Doran does all comes to naught, <laughs> and this quote-unquote game, you know, that Sorella's playing turns out to be like the savior of Dorn somehow. <laughs> I, I don't know how, but it would be pretty funny. Um, I have. I mean, I have a few thoughts. They're not solid. By well, let's end it. On this, let's talk about uh, Sorella. Let's let's talk about uh, Jacquin because this is probably the best time to talk about that. Um, we got another opportunity. Oh yeah! By the way, the alchemist is Jacquin. Yeah, <laughs> devils after dark time. Guess who the alchemist is? Let's talk about that whole old town stuff, and then let's end it. Okay, and then we'll move on. So, All what right. are your thoughts on? Uh, okay, so well, I only really had two. So one that she's she's. She's got some hair hair schemed idea that she can infiltrate the Maester somehow and help the family, mm-hmm. either you know in their attempts to align themselves with the Targaryens um, to see if dragons are real, like to prove that somehow because she's heard tales right. of, of of things uh, you know in the Maesters, um, maybe to try to like validate the alliance between Quentin and Danny, like that's part of her mission there is to like confirm the dragon stuff or you know work with. These sailors that come in and out of that port to you know try to get messages yeah, information. from something, yeah, I thought about that too. some mm-hmm. s- s- some way to just try to firm up that that relationship between the Targaryens and and uh, and, and 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 
to some respect, this is formed around the idea that he calls it a game. Like, he's like, well, probably nothing's going to come of any of that. Like, who's she going to talk to? What's she really going to be able to do from there? And so he just kind of dismisses it. But So that's where really that came from. Some real leap where she's like, maybe I can do something as a maester, and I love learning stuff, so perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one's a little bit, again, even even less information, but Oberyn forged some links yep. as a maester. And maybe he had some old war stories or, you know, some old grudges or favors owed or or something that he needed her to, a, a mystery that he didn't solve or I don't even know what it would be, but something that he wants followed up on in Old Town and that this is the game she's playing, that something that he's led her to, um, you know, that, that she that she wants to see through to the end. And I don't know what yeah. it would be, but something driven by Oberon's connections. Point of interest, uh, very good points. Uh, another point of interest to keep in mind is later when Sam gets to Old Town, we find out that she has managed to somehow connect herself to Marwen the Mage. Well, she does, yeah, yeah, and seems to have gained his trust in the short amount of time. Um, yeah, that's something to keep right. in mind. And, and does and and does reference the glass, the 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 um, the candles, right? Um, indicates that the um, it's a slight indication. I, I believe I was re- re- researching this today. Um, Sam asks how Marwin knew they were coming, and. And Sorella just kind of gestures the towards the towards the candle, yeah, uh, as like the way it happens. So she's she's maybe seeing the dragons, or who knows what those candles can really do. But um, you know, maybe she's had some access to that. All right, uh, that kind of dovetails maybe into what does Jockin want? What's he doing there? Yeah. So Man. just to be clear, Jockin is the alchemist. Uh, yeah. The dis- and he killed Pate with the coin. Yeah, the description given there matches the description given in Arya's POV chapter when uh, Jaquen mutates before her eyes or his face changes. So it's like an equal so either description. George is copying and pasting because mm-hmm. he's tired of writing descriptions of people, or this is Jaquen. I'm going to go with the former. I think Gurm's getting lazy. Yeah, <laughs> nah, it's him. It's him. Yeah, it's him. So, so why is he there, Matt? What do you think? <clears throat> I think it's got to be information gathering. Uh, being a faceless man, he's an assassin, right? And so, but it seems like if he was sent to kill somebody, he he would have done it already. Maybe not. Maybe he's playing a long game, or maybe he's supposed to be. Maybe he was sent to kill Pate. Done. And... <laughs> My job here is finished. Um. <laughs> And then we get, let's not forget the evidence we get later on that Jacquin then takes Pate's face, right? And is him in the, in the Citadel. So he's there. Which is kind of, which is kind of a fucked up choice because Pate, Pate was, he's a screw up, right? He's been a screw up for years and Jacquin, I imagine will be capable. So won't that like rouse suspicions everywhere <laughs> that all of a sudden Pate's earning all these links <laughs> yeah like well maybe that's that's it maybe in this door people uh-huh. don't even notice Pate anymore you know and yeah maybe. and uh that's what Jacquin wants if Jacquin's even his real name right we're calling him Jacquin but probably right. not him but he's playing this long game remember he was in the black cells in King's Landing yeah now whether it was part of the plan or not he's gone with Arya he's been 
Harrenhal, and now who who knows where else he's been, and now he's in Old Town. Um, gosh, I don't even know why he wants to get into the Citadel. Is he wanting to research this whole uh, this whole dragons thing? Find out more of them. You talked about it with Sorella. Is he in on that too and wanting to find out something? I don't know. Well, the, so the Maesters in Old Town kind of possess all the knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And they kind of hoard it, to be honest. Like, yep. they only let out the stuff that they want to let out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Maesters have been, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, they've, they've kind of been on record of kind of eschewing magic, and the Faceless Men are all about magic. Um, Maybe he's just looking for more records of what they can potentially do, or what the Maesters know they can do, how much the Maesters know about the Faceless Men. I feel like maybe the the Maesters and the Faceless Men are like secret societies of enemies Mm -hmm. somehow, or something. I don't have any evidence of that, just feeling... Anti-magic sentiment of the maesters, uh, you know, versus the obviously mystical nature of the faceless men, I think supports that. And we do know that there's some crazy dragon books at the Citadel. So, yeah, yeah. maybe he's after that stuff. So, I guess maybe we, I guess we agree. He's there to gain information. We Probably. Don't know information, yeah. but, but we don't really think he's there to kill anybody. If he was, it seems like he would have already done it. It's just, I don't know. It seems like it. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, all right. Well, anything else to add then on Jockin and Maesters versus Faceless Men? Not yet. Not yet. There's all sorts of theories, you know, that yeah. the Faceless Men caused the Doom of yeah. Valyria and all that. But yep. I don't know if this. I don't know if I've got the strength for that right now. <laughs> I don't even know that that's a theory. Isn't that just known? Uh, or at least they claim right. it. They claim it it's, is known. Yeah. But yeah. Um. That's supposedly the first faceless man, like freed one of the slaves mm-hmm. and stopped so the masters or whatever. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, shall we sign off? We shall, my friend. This didn't go too bad, did it? <laughs> we went long. Uh, I don't but... know. I'll be the judge of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, I guess <clears throat> the Kalasar will tell us if they even but hear this by, by the number of by the number of listens we get. <laughs> uh, all right. No, I think I think the the real judge will be the second episode we release. How many listens we get on that? Because people it's will listen true. to this episode to it's see true. how we do, and then that will <laughs> yeah. indicate whether uh. they're back for the episode fifty-two. Uh, what was it? The one guy called the one guy on Facebook. Uh, sorry, I forgot your name. Uh, Blood Rider uh, called it a three-legged mm-hmm. stool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> we don't disagree with you, my friend. We do not disagree. Yep. Hopefully this stool is weighted such that it will stand on two legs. Yep. But uh, yeah, I think it went I thought I think it went really well. I was really pleased. Okay, signing off then. Uh I, I grabbed a quote quote from Carrie Fisher. This is uh very much a, a directed quote. It's something she said to Daisy Ridley. Um, when Daisy Ridley kind of became the new heroine of Star Wars. Mm. And Carrie Fisher gave her this advice, which is pointed advice, but I think applies to many more things. Um, You know, Carrie was always against, she's famously opposed to the bikini she had to wear in Return of the Jedi. She hated it, right? I remember this quote. So she said to Daisy Ridley, and I want you all to remember this in your own lives, 
doesn't apply just to clothing. You should fight for your outfit. Don't be a slave like I was. You keep fighting against that slave outfit. Carrie Fisher. Well put. Uh, mine is much more frivolous now. We should let you go second. <laughs> uh, I am rewatching Firefly. Uh, and one of my favorite bits uh, is when Wash is playing with a Tyrannosaurus and a Stegosaurus dinosaur, and they're playing happily together. Then all of a sudden, the Tyrannosaurus attacks the Stegosaurus, and he says, The Stegosaurus says, Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal! And uh, I thought it applied to several characters. <laughs> Indeed, uh, in this in this in this thing, it applies to, um, it applies to uh, oh geez, Verimers, what's her friend? Uh, what's his? What's the girl's name? Uh, Thistle. Thistle. Uh, curse your sudden but inevitable trail to Verimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it applies to, uh, it applies to, uh, shoot, who was it? I had three. You can kind of go to now kind of go to John and Stannis, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, perhaps. Uh, I don't think that was one of the ones I had in mind. Yes. Uh, oh, oh, um, uh, from from Balon mm. uh, to <laughs> to Euron. Well, <laughs> I don't know if this is Davos after dark territory. <laughs> to Balon to the rope bridge that he's crossed a million times for swinging him down into the ocean. Uh-huh. Uh And. Um, there was one more, but I've forgotten it now. I feel like it was in the Aereo chapter, but no, I've gonna forgotten. It's going to bug you forever. It's going to bug me. Yeah. You're going to remember it as soon as we so, hang up. curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. My sweet Rosie, I'm feeling so alone. Can you help me? Hey, Blood Riders, no outtakes this episode. Ah, I guess Scad and I were just so focused on doing this first podcast with just the two of us that uh, not a lot was going on behind the scenes. But we do have two songs that I want to give uh, credit for where credit is due. The first was an old classic from my middle school days, Everything You Want by uh, the band Vertical Horizon from their album with the same title called Everything You Want. That's a classic song. He got really sick of it at first, but uh, when it was playing all the time, but you go back and listen to it and you're like, nice, this is a good one. The second one is in honor of Rosie. It's called Sweet Rosie by the band Royal Bliss. It's off their album After the Chaos 2. Sweet little song. Uh, I like it. Anyways, join us next time. I hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, we can't wait to chat with you again. Peace out, guys.